Homo sapiens. Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new. Or just need an entry into classic Doctor Who. We are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Cole. I'm Dan. And I'm Stephen. And have we got a treat for you, sweet dogs? Today we're doing the Ark in Space. Season 12. Man, how did we not get to this sooner? <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's weird. It was on the original shortlist years ago when we were planning this podcast. You're right, Cole. Uh, and yet, for some reason, we, uh, we went with Terror of the Zygons for our first episode. We did. And, I mean, it's a, the same TARDIS team. Yeah, and now, yeah. was that so planned? I think it, it was. I think it definitely was, yeah. yeah. I think this is, this is a great entry point. I think what happened in the end, I guess, was there were so many familiar mm. elements to Terror of the Zygons, not for Doctor Who fans, but for non-Doctor Who fans. Yeah. You know, we had, uh, you know, the, the alien invasion, the, the body doubles. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the sort of uh, juxtaposition of, you know, the alien threat against the safety of yeah. the village. Unit was around, the Brigadier. We wanted yeah, to show sure. We that. did, we did. And Loch Ness Monster. Who doesn't know the Loch Ness Monster? So... And I think it's also worth uh, quoting JR from his recent Desert Planet Picks uh, podcast with Elton uh, Townsend Jones from 4th of April. Um, he says of Terror of the Zygons, it's quintessential Doctor Who story where the, monsters, uh, where the monster is really, really scary and the story beats are really, really creepy. And it sets you up for understanding what Doctor Who is and how it can work. So I think we did choose very well in yeah, doing Terror of the Zygons. All of that goes with Ark in Space too. It really yeah. does, yeah, absolutely. I think it's an almost perfect uh, checklist, I guess, of what classic Doctor Who is, other Ark in Space. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to so be we, able to do we, it. Yeah, we chose wisely. It's Ooh. got everything. It's got uh, space stations, human race asleep, terrifying, uh, terrifying alien monster. Mm. Insectoid aliens. Yeah, a fight, <laughs> a, sort of a fight, a battle inter- like externally between man and alien and also inside a man. You've got an internal fight between man and alien. Absolutely. Uh, and you've got sacrifice, uh, ingenuity, uh, lasers, electricity, all kinds of stuff. There's no lasers, but there's a lot of electricity. And we have Ian Martyr and Elizabeth Slotten. Oh, what a team. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I love them. The production team is amazing on this. So we've, we've visited them before, not least, of course, with Terror of the Zygons. Yeah. It's the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. And it's, in mm. fact, the first Hinchcliffe and Holmes story proper, if you like. Ah, yeah. Uh, we had Robot, the first Tom Baker story. Yeah. But uh, that's very much a, a Terran Sticks and Barry Lett story. It does feel older. It yeah. does. And then there's a massive leap in tone and maybe even quality when we get to yeah. se- story two, I guess, of, of, of season 12 with sure. the Ark in Space. This is an absolutely amazing story. And mm. I think what we'll do uh, when we go through today's episode is not just talk about the Ark in Space, but also use that as a vehicle, I guess, to examine the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era as a whole. Yeah, sure. And to see how, I guess, the arc in space acts as the template for the next uh, three seasons. I didn't even know this was Hinchcliffe's first. So you're saying that the last the robot was uh, Let's and Dicks, and now this is Hinchcliffe's first proper. Yeah, this is where I guess he takes control of the reins. I think at the age of 29. 29. What a spring chicken. Exactly. (laughs) Imagine being handed, you know, one of the BBC's biggest shows on television at the age of 29. It was his first producer gig. Yeah, obviously. And what a gig it was. Yeah, handed the reins of like a sacred British property. I can't even imagine. What were you doing at 29? Big job. Definitely not (laughs) this. No. (laughs) Not a lot, if I remember. Um, Man, what a uh, a job. It's not just him though, is it? There's a certain magic that comes along with his partnership with Bob Holmes. Oh, absolutely. Now, our script editor? He's our script Mm. editor. I've mentioned before that this is probably my favourite team team of classic Doctor Who Mm. production team. Uh, there's something wonderful about these two, the way that they work together. 
they're like Morrissey and Mara of the Smiths. They mm. never ascend to those heights as they do uh, together in those three seasons of Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, their best work really sort of comes uh, by virtue of the fact that they're firing off one another, and I think it really shows, particularly here in the Ark in Space, but throughout the entire era. Mm. Some goes for Lena McCartney. It's their first season, you know, they're, they're, they're fresh and they're ready to go. They've got something to prove. Mm. They've got a new doctor. Like, uh, mm. there's a lot on the line. So they're obviously working their, their butts off. Nobody knows yet how that doctor's going to exactly. pan out. And then start with Robot and, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like Tom comes into his own immediately in Ark. Oh, I feel, mm. I mean, he's great in Robot and I like Robot. I actually, yeah. one of those people that sure. probably actually enjoy Robot. <laughs> but Ark in Space is where he really becomes... The doctor. So so fast. Like you watch it, you'd never really. Is that a fair call, or am I going to? No, I, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's good. This one's <laughs> aged like a fine bottle of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he gets he settles in so quick. Like I I always forget that this is like his second story, and he's already like he's already got all those things that make Tom Baker the Baker Doctor. Like he does the he like we said we watched the commentary the other night, mm. and um, Elizabeth Sladen was saying he does everything. He does everything wrong. Like he does all his reactions are different to everyone else's. Because so he's an alien. alien. Like yeah. he, I've noticed so many times in the story that he smiles at whenever there's danger. He smiles or <laughs> he laughs. He does. He does. It's great. He and did that in Zygons as well. Yeah. yeah. So he's I already love, in the, his, his second story. He's already doing the things that he's known for. And I love the commentary for this one. Yeah. And I love how like you know there's a lot of talk about Tom back then. And, you know the way he was very flighty. He was a mm. you know he's a big big character yeah but he was actually a professional and we get more of that from this commentary people like elizabeth sladen talk about what it's like his method and the way he made the role his own mm. um you know he knew what he was doing like mm. he was always thinking about how to appear more like an alien yeah which yeah. is huge maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves yeah we need to get back to the production team so mm. who's the who's our writer well, this is an interesting one oh, because yeah. John Lucarotti uh, was contracted, I guess, to write mm. the, the script for Ark in Space. Mm. But yep. he hadn't written since the 1960s for William Hartnell. The Massacre was his last script. And he also wrote uh, Marco Polo and yeah. the Aztecs, both, you know, all three of which are sort of, you know, very worthy historical mm. stories in a very different format, in a very different age of television as well. A very different kind of a style once you go, when you go back that far into the 60s. Very that, much. that and also had he only written historicals or had he written... Aliens like in just space. Historic, yeah. Yeah. So obviously this is a jump in, in many regards and to the point where Hinchcliffe and Holmes thought it was unusable. So mm. it's actually a page one Bob Holmes rewrite yeah. of the yeah. entire story. So much that they didn't, they, they, they didn't credit Lucarotti. No, no. But he did get paid, I understand. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, who cares then? <laughs> yeah, who cares about paid. the credit if he got paid? paid. <laughs> yeah, wicked. And our director... Uh, it's Rodney Bennett who comes from drama, and I think it shows here. You know, there's a very there's a seriousness, there's a, a real sort of uh, lovely sense of drama about the the way in which the Ark and Space is shot and told. Yeah. We'll get into that with some great scenes that we'll talk about later on. The yeah. direction and the writing go so well together oh, because yeah. um, they, oh, they re- really sort of it, it lays out the story from from the very start. It lays it out in blocks. It's easy to understand. Uh, they refer back to things later. Then mm. you, they, they constantly lay things out so that you never, you're never looking at something you don't understand. No, the you're structure all... of the narrative is excellent. Yeah, yeah. That's correct. Yeah, and the storytelling through the direction is it really aids that. It's mm. it's really in, in sync. Powerful. Yeah. Let's go back to Tom, and the rest of our TARDIS team <laughs> for Ark in Space. So Tom Baker is the Doctor, as we've mentioned. Ian Marta mm. as Harry Sullivan and Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith. Classic team. They are. They uh, they all bounce off each other well. Just these three, yeah, mm. and it works so well. Yeah. It's amazing. This, the first episode, yeah, you, like you're right. It's just the three of them against this sort of the, like the villain at the start. The piece is like the the women don't even show up until episode two. So the, the, in the first episode, they're kind of just fighting against the station. 
yeah, you, you know, Harry's being condescending to Sarah. Mm. Sarah's being plucky, which is like one of the laziest things you can say about Sarah because she's lots of things, but everyone <laughs> yeah. just calls yeah. her plucky. Um, but, um, and the, you know, and the doctor's kind of in the background investigating. Like, he's, they're, they're just doing what they always do. I, I think that's how he starts. But I think he's riffing as well. Like, yeah. he's riffing with Harry. Like, what's that great line? Um, he's like, Harry, you're improving. Your mind's beginning to work. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> you're improving, Harry. Am I really? Yes, your mind is beginning to work. It's entirely due to my influence, of course. You mustn't take any credit. Yeah, so you mustn't take any credit. It's brilliant. That's brilliant. It is lovely. And that's important, that scene, I think, and yeah. that, the rest of the episode is, as well, because it goes from a three-hand room to a two, mm. and what we see is the Doctor and Harry, and, and their relationship really start to form. And it's it, it's a 1970s BBC TV shorthand way of doing this. So we don't really get to see too much of Harry in Robot. He's no, sort of there no. as a comic relief. Yep. He's referred to off-screen on the telephone by the Brigadier and Planet of the Spiders. So if you're watching this modern eyes in, in that sort of sequential order, it's like, who is this guy? We don't know anything about mm-hmm. him, but they seem to be best of friends. And that scene that they have, particularly under the desk. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> as they're trying to outwit the, the sentinel sort of thingy with, uh, with the shoes. Yeah, the security system the death thing. Ray. The death mm. thing. It's, yeah, exactly. That bit there. It really sort of shows how, um, I, I guess, how much of a team that they actually are and how much of, you know, how pally mm. they can be as well. So we actually see, we're not just told that yeah. they're good friends yeah. as straight well. Away, straight away, so quick. The, the three of them are already doing what the, the kinds of stuff that they'll be doing for the whole season they're, mm. they're instantly lovable yeah, yeah. and uh, I think I even asked this back when we did Zygons have we ever had a better TARDIS team it's, it's a good call cool, yeah that's it? what's right it? up there isn't it <laughs> yeah, it is um, I, I love I love the um like if you're just watching this one on its own, you don't, might not necessarily know what's going on, but they've just come from Robot, and it's Harry's first trip mm-hmm. in the TARDIS. And so the first mm. thing you see of them is Harry coming out of the TARDIS being like, whoa, that was amazing. Oh my God, I'm on a space station. It's just like <laughs> delightful and hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and Harry's like just immediately just so British. Like, you know, he's talking about uh, nothing, you know, he's talking about recovering with a couple of weeks at the seaside. <laughs> um, he's like talking about giving someone brandy to help them recover. And then uh, he talks about he caught his nose in a sliding door in, in Pompey Barracks. <laughs> he's just, uh, talks about like the first lore of the sea He's just like immediately pompous and British and great. He's also set up as a bit of a klutz, right? So he's which is, someone... <laughs> which is weird because wasn't he supposed to be like a sort of running, running, punching, shooting James Bond kind of guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I don't was. think that kind of character would fit into Doctor no, Who. No. So in sort of undermining him in that way, making him a bit lovable and, and fluffy around the edges mm. um, through the, those examples, like getting yeah. his nose caught at the, uh, on yeah. the sliding doors. This... There's but, so many little things that he does. Yeah. He's Ian Martyr is like he's really funny in this role. Mm, like, he's great. There's another yeah. bit where he's sort of feeding Sarah the cable in the um mm. in the down the, the the hatch, and they just have like one little moment where she he's, he's like he thinks she's stuck, and then she yanks the cable, and it's, he's just like his little reactions. He's so funny. He's really good. <laughs> More than a competent doctor though, as well, or yeah. a medical professional, I should say, with a stiff upper lip. Yeah. Okay. And Sarah, I mean, what can mm. you what can you say about Sarah? She's amazing. She's my favorite. I think she's my maybe my, one of my favorite companions. Yeah, she's just like she's like she's often in danger in the season. She's often in, in peril, mm. but she always deals with it well. And she's mm. she's funny and she's warm. And she's, and that carries on into the woman Elizabeth Sladen. Totally. Like the commentary again. She's yeah. so lovely yeah. to listen to. She's so <laughs> calm. Great. She would have been a calming voice on totally. that, on sets back then. You know, but she's, like she's yeah, totally. And Sarah's always sort of running into danger. Mm. Uh, but she's competent, like, and also I think that the actress is so competent that often when you get when someone gets separated from the Doctor, it's her, and Harry ends up staying with the Doctor. And I think that's because people who are making the show know that Elizabeth Sladen can carry a scene by herself, and she mm. can, you know what I mean? She can hold yeah. the viewer. Yeah, and the, and the Doctor and Harry, especially in Arc in Space, that's a great pairing. Isn't yeah, it? they are really yeah. funny together. 
uh, I think you're right, Dan, and following on from that point, we see it throughout season 11 as well, where yeah. a lot of the B-plots carried by, by Sarah in things like Invasion of the Dinosaur, she gets uh, an entire plot to herself as well within, in Time Warrior, her first yeah. story. Um, it, it sort of happens again and again where she's trust as an actress to yeah. to you know bring another strand to the story together. I think I think she absolutely is probably the quintessential classic Doctor Who companion. Mm-hmm. I, think so. I, I agree with you guys that there is something magical about the three of them together. Mm. But I'm okay with Harry leaving at the end of Zygon <laughs> so that we have this amazing relationship between Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slayton going yeah. forward for you know the next season and a half. I think it really defines I, the show. And to the point, by the way, I think we mentioned this in Zygons as well, it's a long shadow that she casts over companions, even into mm-hmm. New Who, where yeah. Clara is, I think, based on Sarah. Oh, wow. The only thing I didn't like about Harry leaving when he did was just sort of the way he didn't really get a send-off. We covered that in yeah, our did, yeah. uh, episode, but yeah. It's true. It's a good point. But yeah, I'm, I, I'm in full agreement with you. Say, Steve, if you were going to sum up the arc in space into, I don't know, maybe just a few words or even a sentence, what would that be? <laughs> I would say that it's Doctor Who does... Ridley Scott's Alien five years before Hollywood does. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? There's the body horror. There's the alien. You know, sort of gestating within. Sure, uh, like the a life human. cycle. Mm, yeah, like, and it looks very much the same well, as well. Because in Alien, there's lots of sparse, like very brightly yeah. lit white kind of um, future corridors and mm-hmm. rooms and stuff. It's, and it's very atmospheric. You've borrowed from your Day of the Daleks high concept. Yeah, T- Terminator being done five years before, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, twelve yeah. years before. See, there you go, kids. <laughs> Doctor Who does does it first. Yeah, also near future, something that's that's it's similar to is there's a, sto- a short story by Bruce Sterling called the uh, called the Swarm, which is about an alien race that's um, that's sort of secretly very intelligent and mm. wants to destroy the, um, all other life. Mm. It's pretty, it's amazing. All right, so I guess we're about to go into the story. Uh, oh, what's that noise? It's probably nothing. Cole, you've had your hand in your pocket this whole time. What's what? going on? Mm, no, nothing. Take your hand just, out of your pocket, Cole. We want to see your hand. Hands are just a bit cold, that's all. I mean, all right. Take it out, Cole. Oh, oh, I'm a woman! Uh, quick, inject me out of the pectoralis major. Oh, it's all right. See, guys, just bubble wrap. Oh, I'm as right as ninepence. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So we're in spoiler town. So in the insanely unlikely event that you haven't actually watched the the, the episode yet, uh, pause this and go and watch it, and then come back. Uh, and so we'll give you a minute. And we're back. Right. I, I just want to start talking immediately about the Wirren because I just love the concept yeah. of this alien and this this, uh, this sort of evil villain uh, antagonist. It's it's just great. Like the the idea of like an insectoid alien race that swarms through the hard vacuum. Mm. Um, to get to like hatching grounds, which are like a terrestrial oil in this case, a space station. It's just so terrifying to me and it's so good. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the, the life cycle, uh, and the, the sort of the idea that they, they seem so inexorable and kind of unbeatable. And the fact that there's potentially millions of them, mm. is just terrifying to me. Like, uh, and you don't know how long ago, the, the, the progenitor queen kind of came onto the station how long it's been there yeah that's a good point so what does a doctor say you've overslept by 5,000 years yeah but, but how that's, l- that's we don't know yeah you don't they know don't really in, that, t- yeah. in that time well obviously it got there and uh, the queen got there and cut the cables and laid its eggs in dune which I think is terrifying mm. uh, and the, one of my favourite things is that you get to see it like um, at this, when, when the queen falls out of the the cupboard and, and also you see the sort of the goo on the floor mm. in the first episode all, that, mm. all the goo is kind of like foreboding and it's kind of a portent like, yes you know, that, that plastic bag they've sort of yeah. like, <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> painted a green. 
the idea that the queen gets there at some point in the past uh, manages to get onto the station, cut the cables, and lay its eggs in Dune, which is terrifying, and then then die because it was zapped. Like it's all kind of inferred at the start. In the first episode, mm. you just have the goo, which yeah. is very portentous, and then you have the you know the queen corpse falling out of the cupboard. But then later on, during that sort of weird um, neural smellovision vision thing, <laughs> you get to see actually what the queen saw. It's amazing. It fills in yeah. all the gaps. You get to see her get zapped. Mm. And then you see it. It's, it's immediately understandable. Yeah, yeah and great. again, this is that point we were talking about before about the script and the direction mm. going hand in hand, mm-hmm. right? You, mm-hmm. you see just enough to intrigue you in those first mm. 30 seconds or so of the arc in space. Yes. We know that we're seeing the same thing again because the same visual effect is used when the doctor hooks up the yeah. wearing. Yep. And so it's like, okay, filling in more of the gaps here. And in the meantime, you've had enough clues, including the green trail and all the mm. rest of it. Um, so it sort of helps to really sort of ratchet up the tension that way. The, and that is definitely through Rodney Bennett's direction and yeah. the, uh, the script as totally well. Totally. Like the, it never really it never leaves you hanging and you're never confused you mm. always know it's going except at the, like at the very start um, and just the idea that the Wirren um, like consume their victims and not oh. only their bodies but also their knowledge like, that their idea soul of, effectively it's right? amazing and it's it's utterly terrifying mm. I just think they're so scary uh, you know notwithstanding the the, the prop <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the prop later <laughs> and how maybe perhaps it could have been better used and the way it was better used and just the idea that all that sort of high-tech perfection, the sort of the space station mm. uh, and all their tech- high technology is invaded by this organic presence, which is like, you know, seeks to like not only eat yeah, and consume you got a, them, like but a, also dominate them. A clinical yeah. environment mm. invaded yeah. by a like a... Yeah, it's, well, it's supposed to be, you know, all this sort of high technology sets us above nature and it's supposed to protect us. But in the end, you're you're invaded by nature again. Like this, the idea that they're, they're insects is the, one of the terrifying things because like insects are like 90% of life on earth and they've been there for so long, like 300 million years or something. And they, like, obviously they've evolved into, well, these aren't earth aliens, but no, like the idea that like, and just the idea of an insect it's an alien is terrifying definitely, to me. Definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of resonates in terms of the way in which the earth has been regenerated after solar flares as well, that, you know, all of the monuments and whatever of history and, and humanity are gone. Mm. Uh, and we see that in the next episode in Centauran uh, experiment yeah. as well. But you're right. Um, the other thing I think that's really amazing about this conception of the Wirren is, do you want to call it like a race memory? That's what they call it, I think. Okay, right. It's the idea that like they, they part, not only can they consume your knowledge, but they can you know, pass it on through the next hatching mm. to, like the, to every Wirren that's born in the next generation. Yeah. So it's such a brilliant idea. So then it's not a hive mind. So... We've had this conversation. <laughs> We've been arguing about it off, off, off yeah. air. Technically, no. It's not okay, a hive mind. Right. So a hive mind would involve some form of telepathy to communicate. Well, they all share the, or same, share the same mind. Yeah. Share the same or they mind. all have to share the same mind. So they're sharing a certain... They're sharing knowledge. But, but, it's, but it's only when they pass it down to the next right, generation. Right, and that's right, so right. awesome. Like you were saying before, like it's such a great idea that like in only one more generation, because they're planning to um, eat and absorb mm. all the humans on the station, mm-hmm. they, they'll have... The, they'll have their fingertips the sum of all human knowledge in one generation and mm. so when they when they make the next generation of Wirren that knowledge will be passed down and they'll be able to mm. become a, you said before like technologically advanced species which is so cool mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that's that it's really terrifying isn't it that yeah. idea that they're going to you know something takes over a host mm. it's usually just the body yeah they're absorbing everything yeah mm. they're the essence of that person like an apex parasite yeah <laughs> yeah um, it's so it's really funny I was just looking up race memory and genetic memory on as a theory on, on the internet and in the Wikipedia entry for genetic memory it like references the arc in space no way, yeah. no way. <laughs> pretty awesome yeah it's great what a fluke <laughs> that you is literally amazing. looked that up about 20 minutes totally ago. totally it's amazing <laughs> 
and it all happens on that fantastic space station, Space Station Nerva. It's so oh, awesome. Oh, what a set. I know. This so, is a God. triumph. There's so many good sections to it. Like there's a corridor that they reuse. It's the same oh, one. Two different ways. It yeah, looks great. That was great watching the special features on the DVD, wasn't it? Like so, so this is Roger Murray Leach, the yeah. designer, right? Yeah. And he talks about how we have this curved corridor which ends six <laughs> inches beyond the edge of yeah. the, uh, yeah. the, the line yeah. of sight. <laughs> the like, line of sight. Absolutely. Yeah. And then shot from the other side, it genuinely looks like they're walking yeah. around, you know, a ring uh, on, on the space station. And, and you know what? Watching those scenes again for the umpteenth million time, yeah. um, <laughs> I still remember the first time I saw them. Yeah, can't remember the age yeah. I was. Can't remember that, but I remember the first time I seen it. Going, oh, that looks nice. <laughs> Immediately, I that's just it. I think when I saw it, I was like, oh man, this is pretty high. Not realizing that this, this is quite a high. A high bar, like a high watermark mm. compared to the, a lot it, of the rest it of the stuff. It's amazing to think that this is 1974 and yeah. with essentially, you know, just a, a few bits of, of, of white, uh, I don't know, one of you, I don't know, is it cardboard? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. mm. probably not. Um, but, you know, the, the twinkly lights that are meant to be yeah. the stars yeah, outside, right. uh, it's sort of evocative. And I didn't know this until later, I guess, but of things like 2001 and Space Odyssey, that sure. sort of brightly lit white interior. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think it trades on that. But again, we also said that it was uh, an antecedent of. Um, alien and, and the way that that looks and feels so mm. it sort of plugs into that you know 20th century uh, conception of what space and space stations look like really really well on mm. you know mm. what, what did Roger Murray Leach say Thruffins so they gave me Thruffins <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah he was good he, yeah he was good but what a clever man hey so and hats off to him oh absolutely, absolutely. and so it's a, you know he's, he's really using the, the idea of smoke and mirrors to get more out of very what, well you know, yeah. I couldn't believe that yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah yeah so like can we talk a little bit about the cryogenic chamber oh, mm. that's such a now, great set there's anyway there's a few things yeah. that made this set look Fantastic. Mm. One of them we'll talk about is what we saw in the in the, on the in the special features. Yeah. Uh, is the fact that he was using mirrors. He used a sheet of mirror. Incredible. To reflect back. To make it look like there was another chamber. Love yeah. Another chamber behind. And because it's, it's sort of it's sort of going side diagonally. It's yeah. made, to, made to make you. I think it's meant to make you think there's a, there's a cluster of um, yep. chambers. Yep, that's which, right. And I'm going to say I didn't pick it. Kind me? of like a hive, maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. but like and you don't even notice it, and you totally accept immediately that they're in this room full of people and then mm. you figure out very slowly what they're for and then mm. you realise that there are hundreds of them. Yeah. You realise there must be more yeah. and more well, and more rooms. And that's what rooms. the doctor says, there must be hundreds of them. And yeah. sort of, you know, that coupled with the really high camera angle yes. they choose mm. to use. Yeah. So coming down, like as the doctor's looking, doctor and Harry are looking up. As if it's really tall. Uh, yeah, you bottom get of the really impression tall tube. that, like, if you know, you see the sets in the in the behind the scenes and they're only three people high. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's really not yeah, that high. Yeah, they were right <laughs> at the edge of the like what the camera can see. Like they <laughs> took it right yeah. to the edge. Yeah, <laughs> it's really risky. But it works. Yeah, it it looks really like it. works. It's great. You buy it immediately, I think. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's even down to the care taken through things like um, the floor design, which in Doctor mm. Who, in classic series, is often neglected and it just looks like a studio floor, yeah. but it doesn't here. No. You know, we have that, I want to say hexagonal, but it's not design. Mm. It sort of mimics the, uh, it, it still put me in mind of bees, I guess. Like, and like bee the honeycomb hive. The exactly. Honeycomb it's similar to Tomb of the Sidemen a little bit as yes. well. You've got this sort of like honeycomb effect of these like little chambers. Yeah, and that sort of design on the floor, that sort of octagonal, hexagonal thing that runs with the line of the wall. Mm. So, so it kind of tells you without you even have to think about it that, that behind you and behind the camera are more yeah. cryogenic pods. Yeah. Mm. It's great. Um, and all those rooms look great. I love that I, word pod. Sorry, I just want to go back to that for a second. <laughs> I, I even love the first few rooms that they're in, the little control rooms. The doors that silently open and, and slide mm, yeah. close. And also they How'd don't... How they get them so smooth? Mm, don't. Murray Leach... 
You did it again. You dog. <laughs> Usually uh, that stuff's always so shaky. <laughs> he got it smooth. And man. you have to step through the doors because they're, so, they're sort of raised off the ground, like a submarine. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. Because yeah. they're vacuum sealed and, and for some reason soundproof. I'm not sure and why. And airproof. Yeah. Yeah, well, that first the first episode is so perfect where they mm. get mm. Sarah gets separated and they're all struggling for air except the Doctor. Mm. Well, but we know about that already. It's like I visibly mean. like not affected by the lack of air until like it gets really dire. But they're sort of gasping and it's it's really just like Zygons, in fact. Yeah, just like in yeah. Zygons, the Doctor has that thing. He can slow down his yeah. breathing. He slows down his heartbeat. He can almost appear to be dead. Yeah. When he has to, we've seen that before. Mm. But Almost, you know, we'd be seeing it later, <laughs> but yeah. And he's so the, the, it's so scary immediately because they're running out of air, which is like it's something everyone Body can horror. understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and uh, that he has to come through and cut the cable, uh, reattach the cables. Like it's just so, it's so great. It, it is amazing, and all of that sort of set design stuff, I think, is incredible. But it works again with particularly the lighting, mm. which. You know, mm. one of the things that we noticed when we were watching it the other night was just yep. how the use of light and shadow really adds to oh my God. a very creepy atmosphere. Mm. Um, and it's incredible to think that this is 1974 mm. and they do have that play of light and shadow. Mm. And it's very, very different from, say, 1980s Doctor Who, which is yeah. lit up like a Christmas yeah. tree. And it's it blown doesn't, out. Yeah. It doesn't very flat. Look, it is very flat. Mm. And it's also and unforgiving. Everything. That's yeah. right. You see yeah. everything. You see all the flaws. Yep. And I feel like... Because of that lighting, because of the, the sort of dimness in, in pockets or in, in corners, mm. um, that kind of stark relief, I guess, that you would have under those harsh studio lights of the 80s, it's much more forgiven, forgiving. So, you know, it could well be Thruppence Ha'penny sort of uh, was spent on the design, but it mm. doesn't look that way because no. of the lighting. So this is, the, this is where we get to see it. The we're in, the, the we're in work best in gloom. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, you know, we've got the Doctor going down into the, uh, the under part of the arc. Oh, in the solar chamber. The, yeah. the solar chamber that sort of gloomy lighting mm. and you say it's the silhouette of the Wirren yeah. which really works so well which is scary that's where the design works yeah not when you see it blown out when and you can see all the scenes of the up. costume and it's, <laughs> that you know, first time and it's, it's all wobbly and yeah. the mandibles are all sort of like but when you see that that silhouette that hunched over mm. that silhouette, shape silhouette that sort of sharp angled head mm. you know it's 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 ominous mm. it's really scary and it's, it's that, and that's the the solar stack is like the sort of like the underchamber like yeah, the, yeah, the engine yeah. room right which is why it's kind of which dark is also where they had that cool like rune larvae eyeball thing inside oh, yeah, the thing inside the, looks the, so cool this, that was immediately alien and immediately yeah. kind of scary and mm. gross and organic yeah, yeah, and there's an eyeball yeah. and it's just moving around in green sludge yeah. like yeah and because you see that um, later on when it breaks out when, and um, I think it's uh, Noah who comes down to check the stack. Yep. You see it's broken and it's not in there anymore. Yeah. You know it's in it's there escaped. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And no, it's just it's like gone. very clever direction. Because your eyes drawn to that very lovely image of it. I'll yeah. call it lovely for now. <laughs> but yeah, so you're immediately drawn to that, the shape of that hatch again, aren't you? And yeah. you notice that there's actually the glass is broken puts it, they put it in the corner of the frame yeah, and you know yeah. immediately what's yeah. going on like yeah. it's just very clever it's direction. Out, I, yeah. I agree and and this sort of works in the same way that tomb of the cyber worked where we go into the tombs underneath mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like a crypt right mm-hmm. so it's it's on a space station it's mm. futuristic but it also sort of speaks of that ancient evil and horror that lurks deep beneath mm-hmm. you know in the, un, in the catacombs yeah, because it's been the nesting earth. down there we don't yeah. know for how long yeah it's, no. uh, yeah doctor who always does does that really well when they do sort of high high future tech like super super advanced technology but they kind of mix that with really long time scales you know like like Mm -hmm. like the station's super future for us 
but it's been there it's so a relic. long. Really, yeah, it's, it's a kind relic. of ancient, yeah. and it's been sitting there for so long on this long time scale that it's kind of ancient future mm. tech. Yeah. It's kind of like they do the same thing in Tomb of the, Cyber, um, Tomb of the Cybermen, yeah. where they have to like archaeologically dig out this immensely incredibly advanced future like technology yeah like tomb yeah Yeah. so doctor who does that really well when they when they sort of yeah i'd agree with that yeah yeah they make future tech kind of an ancient thing that old new thing ominous and i'm wondering also when we come back to the lighting and the way you know the gloom Mm. works best the the less you see the more scarier it is then you've got the wearing sort of blown out they're always in the white in those clinically blown out white lit parts of the arc and it's like is it avoidable i don't know is it avoidable to I, I'm not sure it is actually because I think, you know, the, the play of light and shadow means that the well-lit places are meant to be safe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, so when you see the Wirren invade those safe spaces, that's mm. meant to be an element of, of even further horror mm. because, you know, if they're down in the, in the, in the crypt, then they're yeah. not really sort of doing anything except, you know, doing what they do. Yeah. But yeah, when they emerge around, yeah. in, and encroach into humanity's mm. uh, domain, in the same way that like cockroaches or, you know, <laughs> whatever else mm. come into your own house, that's when the terror begins. It's a trick, like, they, they mm. sort of lull you in straight away at the start. There's the, you're in a clean, white, mm. um, sterile sort of space environment. And it's sort of, and because it's high tech again, you're sort of meant to be, meant to feel safe. But immediately they start running out of air. It's like the station <laughs> isn't benevolent, you know, like yeah. it's not a, mm. a benevolent mm. space. And then they do it again by bringing the weir in, up from the dark kind of engine room space mm. uh, up into the, the bright. And unfortunately, where we see them warts and all. Yeah. Just, yes. well, maybe maybe it was so, unavoidable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it is. Oh, yeah, I think it just has to be. I mean, whether it was could it be shot better, I, I don't really mind. 90% of the shots of the Wirren are so wonderful mm. because of the lighting that's used. And in mm. this instance, I'm prepared to let it go. And it's oh, scary, course, it's scary again because uh, the Wirren don't the cut the power. And mm. so the, the lights go out in the room that they're in. Uh, yeah. and, that's, mm. and they turn off mm. the oxygen and that's immediate that's like they're, they're playing with that again is this a bit Hal in 2001 again just another reference to <laughs> you know a, a sort of malevolent force that um, is meant to keep humanity safe but actually is, can you know extinguish it just like that yeah it made me think straight away of um of there's an aliens movie where um they cut the power to the, to a station and like one of the characters is like what do you mean they cut the power <laughs> they're they're animals like they're not intelligent and just reminds yeah me. yeah. I think another way in which the atmosphere of this story is really sort of uh, amped up is through the way in which music mm. and music and silence works together. So it's Dudley Simpson. Yeah, of course. Dudley. Who I've said before, I love oh, Dudley. Yeah. I <laughs> really do. Yeah. Um, but there's this uh, incredible sort of soundtrack, one of Dudley's best, I think, mm. uh, in the whole series that um, really is uh, just wonderfully used to ratchet up the tension. But what's amazing, right, is the use of silence interspersed with it yeah, as well. Yeah. So. And sometimes you don't even realise that you're listening to the music until the silence kicks in. Mm. And again, just the way that that helps to ratchet up the tension and Mm. then just leave it suspended for a moment. Mm. And that's terrifying because you don't know what's going to happen next. Absolutely, because the score of something can make or break it. You Mm. know, we've all seen things where there's a score that seems to be continuous, (laughs) running through in the background, and it's not the right sort of score and it's just Mm. wrong for the piece and it doesn't work. That's not happening here. No. Yeah. It serves to heighten for me the kind of the, the premise that they're they're in this space station, uh, this clean white space mm. um, with like just a airless vacuum outside, and yeah. it's like never more so than when the the shuttle launches, and they made the amazing choice to just make it totally silent. Silent, mm. yeah. When, yeah. Well, like after the after you see the the violence of the sort of the rocket launch, it sort of goes back out to a sort of view of the station yeah. prop yeah. with the little rocket that sort of just silently it glides away. Works so well. It's because so great. Space mm. is silent, yeah, so totally. therefore they've they've used that. That's great. Yeah, I love that, and um, I love yeah the when when the, when Noah. Says goodbye, 
the shuttle explodes, it's just like a boop. It just makes a little yeah. blip. Yeah, yeah it yeah. sort of explodes the oxygen that's within yeah. the um, mm. the spaceship, but then there isn't sort of flames because it's it's a vacuum in space. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. That sound and that silence really work together. Totally. I think. Mm. I've bloody loved that space station prop. I think it looks great from yeah. right from oh. the start <laughs> and at the end. <laughs> Me too. They look great. I'm not so sure, but again, <laughs> no, no, no. I love it too. I, really I love, love it, it too. Love and it. and you to you to think that the that that um. That hallway, the, the yeah, hallway is is that ring totally because around like, yeah. again you see the space station first and then it later adds, on you see the curved corridor like it's telling yeah. you something at the start adds, that it comes back to later exactly adds to the reality of the curved yeah. corridor even more doesn't I love, it I love that curved yeah. corridor great connection <laughs> twinkly lights it's beautiful so good um should we talk about the colonists on the space station and the whole uh, concept yeah well oh. there's laws aren't there well uh, yeah they, they seem to have this like real rigid hierarchy yeah they've got a prime unit. Yep. Uh, a first tech, uh, and everyone's kind of rigidly set into their roles. Mm-hmm. And because I, I remember watching it this time, I forgot that there are. The doctor says there's only hundreds, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. In my mind, reading the book and maybe seeing it when I was a kid, I imagined thousands and thousands of them on this huge space station. Mm-hmm. But it's actually only hundreds, and that means mm-hmm. that you get hints of it in the dialogue that they're they're like the gene pool. And sort of the future bonds between people and the children they're going to have must be like rigorously set out like they thousands are. and thousands of they years are. beforehand. That's right. Yeah, because like, uh, what is um, What's the term? Pair, pair bonding. bonding. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, they're pair bonded. And like they've been selected, like yep. our virus said we were selected to be pair bonded by someone else. So someone yep. else chose that for yep. them, uh, like genetic planners, right? And so mm-hmm. yeah. I think Noah says, even because it's been so rigidly planned out, probably for like maybe many generations mm-hmm. of like they're, they're allowed to mate with and who they're not allowed to mate with. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, even three people could throw us off. You know, yeah, you, can't you can't have, have three randoms. You can't throw in. Around. You can't throw rogue seed into the gene pool, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And and like, uh, it's just great. And he calls them regressives. I love yeah. That. yeah. So this is a little sinister for me because it sort of hints towards eugenics, right? Mm. This uh, sort of early twentieth century yeah. idea that was taken up essentially to its nth degree by by fascism and Nazism, which sort of talked about the master race and the planning of of essentially you know, who is allowed to, to procreate and who isn't and, what, mm. and in what manner. Totally. Um, so it sits really uncomfortably. And so as a re- result, there's also this sort of very mm, fascistic sort of aspect yeah. to the colonists or, you know, the, the sleepers or whatever the, you want to call them. On the, the uniforms. Arc. The uniforms the is an example. The lack each of humour. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I wonder whether there isn't kind of like a, a sort of mm, almost tragic depiction of what humanity has to become to survive the end of days. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that kind of leaning towards the... Uh, extremes of, I guess, uh, you know, human si- political science. Noah, like, total straight away is like super aggressive to like effectively foreigners, right? Yeah, yeah. it is xenophobic, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And then you've got Vira, who oh man, I love Vira. Wendy, Wendy amazing, Williams. the amazing Wendy Williams. No, Wendy Williams. <laughs> that was so. That was Tom in the commentary. <laughs> we we watched the commentary, the and it was like, well, for a second we thought the doctor said it. It was <laughs> really <laughs> weird. It threw me right off. It sounded exactly like a yeah. She, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. She appears. Vira appears in like on the commentary. Um, Tom Baker's like, "Hello, Wendy Williams." And we all thought it was the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? That's so good. She's so great. Um, I think she's wonderful. Yeah, now she's awesome. She she really hold like she's definitely the most watchable of all the colonists, and it's like I think yeah. that's the reason she's she gets so much screen time, and she she's not as immediately xenophobic as Noah. Like you can and you can see that she's sort of immediately starts to sense that something's wrong. Well, mm. it's like who who wouldn't notice? Because Noah kind of immediately starts to go haywire once he gets stung by the slime. Mm. Um. And he start, He says, "I am." He says, "I am Dune," doesn't he? Yeah, that's the first. Oh, like, that was creepy, so, man. Yeah, that it's, was. Yeah. It's really the, the actor did it really, really creepily. Mm. 
did. Uh, and it's sort of, uh, it's like the first hint of that sort of idea of race memory that the, that the Wirren kind of consumed, mm. uh, consumed Dune and his knowledge and then maybe maybe passed it on to, um, to Noah in that sort of yeah. slime. When he got slimed, exactly. yeah. it, that knowledge has gone over Right, as well. right, yeah. Be, yeah. And okay. it's fascinating. Is it Libri who sort of recognises the Wirren in the form of Noah upon mm. immediately uh, resuscitating or re- revivifying? Mm. He like sees a silhouette that he can't expect. Yeah, like and he's terrified of Noah. something there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a beautiful piece of foreshadowing there, I thought. Mm. Do you know, the the other character, Rogan, uh, is fascinating for me because we were talking before about that very sort of ordered clinical mm. uh, organisation of, of humanity along the lines of eugenics. Mm. But in Rogan, we have someone who's, what, South London? Yeah. Well, you've got, you've got, you've got it's like all, always in Doctor Who, you've got toffs at the top. <laughs> yeah. And then a few rungs down the ladder, you've got your working class guy. He, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he comes across as a very sort of down-to-earth, pardon the pun, uh, type of character but it's interesting, again, that we sort of have this character who is, well, another example, I guess, of, you know, classic BBC classism, casual, casual yeah. classism. Yeah. <laughs> and he saves the day at the end. I love that uh, High Minister speech, man. It's just, um, it's, uh, it's another example of like extreme Britishness when she uses the word, instead of intervals, she says interregnum, which is just like <laughs> so, so good. She, yeah, it's got like when, when she starts the speech, the first part you hear is like when, it's, when Sarah's getting put under, right? Mm. And it's kind of sinister and like it's strange and what's going on. But mm. the second time you hear it is when it's Vira and Noah and everyone's yeah. stressed and worried. And it's such just a great thing because it's like a speech of hope. Yeah, it's a, that's where it's rousing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's yeah. Just supposed to be like a speech that gives them that, that gives them optimism and hope. And mm. actually, it's just freaking everyone out. This is the Earth High Minister. The fact that you are hearing my voice in a message recorded thousands of years before the day in which you are now living, is a sure sign that our great undertaking, the salvation of the human race, has been rewarded with success. I just love that. I love Noah when he um, when he's hearing it and he's knowing that that's, that stuff's not for him anymore. Like mm. he's, he's been taken over. Like I'd love to know more about what he does remember and what he doesn't because he says at one point, I have no memories of the No, this yeah. is interesting to me because I think that's a fallacy. I think mm. that's the we're starting to fight back against Noah right. starting to mm. fight back right. because obviously they do. They know June's race memories, right? Mm. So of course they must have a memory of the earth because they've ingested so. June and now Noah increasingly Because they don't just well. sort of like take and discard. They take the lot. Exactly. So yeah. I think this is the we're starting to run scared, right? Mm. And try to repress that human spirit that we see later and that Tom has already called indomitable. Mm. So we're talking sort of about the, the, the way they got around some of these tight shots mm. to create something that you know isn't really there. Mm. Yeah, There's some great shots through doors as well, Dan. You were talking yeah. about some of that earlier when you were saying about this sort of whisper quiet yeah. where the doors open and shut. It's like, well, if you're not facing them, you're not even in your periphery. You're not even going to know that the door is opening yeah, or exactly. closing, which is what happens with Sarah yes. as well, which is great. <laughs> um, but there's that great... The, when, they, um, when the Doctor and Harry find the, the library mm. of everything on microfilm, yeah. they've got like, and they're going through, it's like, it's history, it's music, it's everything. That it, it's all of humanity being catalogued and mm. what for. And so I think Harry says it's, it's like a survival tool. And he says, well, and the question is, where is humanity? Mm. Yeah. And then that door slides open from behind them. And we're on the other side of that door now. <laughs> and on that question, where is human, humankind or humanity, whatever it is, they both slowly turn around. Yeah. And what we're seeing on the left-hand side is just, just this little so glimpse, good. that tantalizing glimpse yeah, of the cryogenic pod. Totally. A couple of them in a row. And you're like, what is going on? That's <laughs> so good. That's and that's great. the direction again by Rodney yep. Bennett. It's so beautifully it complements the script. It's, it really it's, does. It's amazing. 
So I think in addition to it being like a really beautifully stylistic piece of television that really sort of sets up the Hinchcliffe and Holmes gothic uh, yeah. aspects, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment, um, there's a greater depth to it as well, I guess. And Colin, you were doing some research around Arkinspose. Yeah, I, I stumbled on something. Uh, there's this academic called Andrew Crome who did mm. an, uh, well, an analysis of apocalyptic themes in Doctor Who. So oh. he, you know, he covers Ark extensively, but I'm assuming he's done other ones as well. Okay, yep. Obviously, you know, on the face of it, you've got Noah and the Ark. Yeah. Noah's Ark, well, we all pick up on that immediately, don't we? Well, yeah, because obviously, just to sort of draw out that parallel, mm. Noah's Ark is, you know, all of the animals and the people saved yeah. from, you know, God's uh, vengeance, Disaster. if you like, mm. on an Ark uh, uh, and the yeah. sort of race pool um, collected in one place yep. that would then respawn. Yep. And uh, so he also talks, he makes a, a connection between the solar flares that have supposedly scorched Earth and yeah. made it uninhabitable, coming in with the Genesis Flood um, flood myth yeah that's really interesting i think because i think there's other aspects i'm not sure if he, if he talks about this but the the first thing that i thought of in terms of solar flares is that sort of apocalyptic vision in revelations of the earth being you know war-torn and, and scorched mm. uh, before the second coming uh, and again the second coming of man in this yeah. instance and the reclamation of the planet uh, and just going back to noah and this mm. is Holmes being sort of darkly intelligent and, and a little cynical mm. again uh, it's just in passing it's revealed that his real name is actually Lazar which is well Lazarus yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> the the reborn in or the risen from the dead in, in the New Testament um, and it's cynical and a bit dark here because of course Lazar or Noah is reborn but this time as the we're and swarm leader right so there's a corruption mm, of the humanity sure. uh, there uh, as part of that sort of character um, but it's interesting as well because there's a second rebirth and I want to talk about that later on in terms of the way in which the gothic elements yeah. come through uh, in this story um, so, because it's it's very very clever the way in which Holmes sort of has that double meaning around uh, Lazar as well as Noah mm. He drew this guy Chrome. He drew like this other really cool parallel as well hmm. between the commandment given by God to man in Genesis uh, one right. twenty eight, yep, and also the uh, High Minister's rousing speech oh, to yeah, the humans the when they're awakening. Good one from cryogenic sleep. Yes. So, so the Genesis one reads, "Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth," and the High Minister's speech is, "You know, you will return to an earth purified by flame." If it be arid, you must make it flourish. If it be stony, you must make it fertile. It's a, <laughs> isn't I, I it? See Holmes, it. I see wonderful. It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is lovely, and it is a rousing speech, isn't it? Yep. Oh, um, I love that speech. Oh man, it's so good. It's like they when they when they're hearing it, when when Noah knows that he's been mm. transformed and he's in another room, you can see Vira listening, and it means something different to all of them. Like she's hearing it, and it's kind of making her sad and worried. Yeah. And but it's because it's so it's got so much weight to it. But you can see that sort of anguish in his eyes as he realizes that yes. none of this stuff is for him anymore. You know, it's not it's not for him. He's going to be he's a weary and he's lost. But I also think it's the point in the narrative where Noah starts to fight back against the weary host. He does. He uh, does. And how that plays out, we'll talk about later on. But it's an absolutely <laughs> critical speech because it mirrors for the other characters the speech that they don't get to hear, but we do, and we mm. alone, which is Tom's incredible. Homo sapiens yeah. indomitable oh, speech, yeah. which is one of the highlights yeah. of Doctor Who for me. It's incredible. <laughs> it's yeah. Homo sapiens. What an inventive, invincible species. It's only a few million years since they crawled up out of the mud and learned to walk. Puny, defenseless bipeds. They've survived flood, famine, and plague. They've survived cosmic wars and holocausts. Now, here they are, out among the stars, waiting to begin a new life. 
ready to outsit eternity. They're indomitable. Indomitable. Okay, guys, we got to talk about the bubble wrap. <laughs> we do, we do. And you know what? And you were talking earlier about the first time I'd ever watched this and I was so blown away by the arc set. I knew at a glance, even as a child, <laughs> that that was bubble wrap, that that was bubble wrap wrapped around a sleeping bag or bubble wrap wrapped around a hand. I, guess. Or it's like, <laughs> I don't yeah. think I ever really thought about it as a kid, but now it's hard, to, hard not to know. You can't shake it. Yeah. But it's really important <laughs> to remember that bubble wrap wasn't recognized oh. as bubble wrap at the time. Space age tech as well for the time. Like yeah. no one had seen it yet, right? It, it wasn't used to house your goods you were buying online <laughs> eBay, then, yeah. you know? <laughs> This is such a great example of the way in which uh, Doctor Who and 1970s BBC television dates, right? Mm. So at the time, it's entirely plausible that something that someone has never seen before, let alone on television, is used as a prop, right? Yep. Because we've we've had, you know, um, dishwasher containers used for spaceships. There's no problem in using <laughs> bubble wrap, and particularly mm. because it's something that always oh, brand new. Mm. But we can't get away from the fact that it is bubble wrap yep. in 2019 or even in the 80s when we yep. were watching yep. it. Yeah, we knew, we knew. Exactly. Yeah. And this is interesting for me for a number of reasons. One, it actually was one of the things that I was thinking about. We can't open with this as our first episode of New to Who oh. because people always talk about the bubble wrap when they're new to Who, yeah, right? Yeah, it's infamous, isn't it? It is that, but it also highlights a larger theme, I think, around the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, which is that there is there are things that, um, if not acceptable, were... Um, common enough mm. elsewhere uh, to at the time that don't no longer translate well uh, mm-hmm. in our era as well. So the bubble wrap is kind of like a microcosm, I think, of the problems of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes era um, as it's seen in, in postmodern times. You imagine laying your eyes on bubble wrap for the first, if you're working in, in any form of like production design <laughs> or art direction. First time you catch a glimpse of bubble wrap, like, I've got to use that. Yeah. I've got to use that. I've got to paint it green or something. I've got to do something with that. It's like, oh man. Because apparently it was only used, at, like it was used in the 60s by IBM. Okay. And that was kind of it. Right. So it's like. And then it became just a, a, a ubiquitous. Huge, yeah. yeah. I guess even tinfoil was like space age tech once. Well, yeah. we saw it, as, you know, <laughs> stand in for monsters in one Tom Baker story. <laughs> yeah. Invasion of time. So, <laughs> I, for me, the, I mean, yeah, for me, the effects are like kind of, it's, it's one of the, another example we've, we've talked about before. That the story is so strong, mm. the writing and the direction and, oh. the, and the the characters, it's so strong that it kind of outshines the 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 effects for me, like the the feelings. But we've always said that you've always got to look totally. past it. Yeah. They're budgetary restraints, that and they true. were unavoidable at the time. Yeah. And if we had to look at it for what what's good about it, mm. you have to you for have this, to forgive it. For you this one, to. I think it's easy because the story the story is oh. just so strong. And they went above and beyond with what little they had and in the things sets. like the sets. Yeah. Oh my Great. God, yeah. yeah. I still don't know if it's easy because I think if you put this in front of a six-year-old child, <laughs> uh, they're going to see it for what it is. But I think mm. you do need to uh, be aware of the, the different contexts, I guess, yeah. and treat yeah. them. Children are so much better at suspending disbelief. They're so good at Well, it. possibly true as well, yeah. In the internet age, I don't know. And these sets are just so good that they, that they reused them, didn't they? Yeah, season and yeah, exactly. Yep. And and I think bubble wrap has sort of entered into the the public imagination around Doctor Who to the point where in series eleven we have a story kablam that basically is predicated upon <laughs> the uh, the plot device of bubble wrap, and it's just one of those things where I think it's a knowing nod. That's to interesting. I hadn't thought about that, <laughs> Steve. There's a term that you often use a lot, and that's gothic. Is there any way we can now get to the bottom of this, get, like, can you connect this? Can you connect some dots? I, I think we ought to because I yeah. think it's, you know, uh, Dan, you mentioned earlier that plucky is a word that's lazily used to describe Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane. I think sure. gothic can be 
similarly a term that's lazily used mm. to describe the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Mm-hmm. It's a shorthand for many number of things. Um, and I think also it's one of those terms that is so bandied around that sometimes it's not actually interrogated for what it actually yeah. is, right? Yeah, so totally. I think it's probably worthwhile now having a look at what the Gothic actually means in terms of its definitions and conventions mm-hmm. and then applying it to certainly the arc in space and maybe we'll have a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see how the Gothic sort of continues on into the entire Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Mm. All right. Okay. I'm game. Yep, let's Lovely. So let's start with the, what a working definition of the Gothic actually is and, okay. and see if we can apply it to sure. the Ark in Space and, and Hinchcliffe and Holmes. So it's important to understand the Gothic is something that comes out as a subgenre of literature. Originally in the 1700s, there's a book called uh, The Castle of Otrano from 1764 by a chap called Horace Walpole. But it's really in the 1800s where Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and later Bram yeah. Stoker's Dracula, the, the subgenre is solidified and enters into the public imagination. Sure. It's bound up in ideas of Victoriana, um, but it's essentially, and I'm going to sort of quote here um, the, the characteristic elements of it, including fear, horror, death and gloom, but as well as romantic elements uh, such as nature, individuality, something that will come up again, and high emotion. So it's also a very romantic as well as a Victorian uh, subgenre, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting because we see these elements throughout. So we talked earlier about the setting, right? Um, these, These kinds of stories are often set in somewhere imposing like a castle or an abbey or it could be a prison or a ha- or, you know, large house somewhere in the countryside. Here we have an arc in space. And it's interesting because uh, the, the tension in Gothic literature is between the, in- the individual and this yep. imposing edifice of a place. And that's something that we see again and again, right? There's a, there's a sense of foreboding in the same way that we saw in the Tomb of the Cybermen. But there is also this kind of sense of romantic individualism and the way that it plays through as well. I'm going to come back to that in a bit because I think the atmosphere is really critical in the way in which Gothic or the Gothic is is created as well. So within these imposing places, there are, you know, hidden chambers and secrets and and essentially this, this, this idea of haunting. That's the overriding atmosphere of the Gothic. And I think we have that here. We have it in terms of the sense that something is not quite right. You know, we, we talked about how it's essentially a base on siege and this feeling that there's something not quite right. And we have yep. the shots of the crypt or the, the solar chamber there that sort of uh, uh, underscores that. Uh, but there's also a sense in the, in the Gothic of essentially a transformation, a loss of humanity. And sometimes it's werewolves, sometimes it's vampires, sometimes it's, you know, the, the Frankenstein monster itself. And sometimes, like here, it's the possession by the Wirren, the transformation of Noah from a human sure. into essentially the swarm leader. And this is really interesting, particularly in the Ark in Space, because it plays out in the way that the narrative uh, unfolds. We have the triumph of the individual, right, which in this case is Noah's human spirit, over and against that sort of hive mind, that implacable force of the Wirren. And that, to me, is really interesting. We, we sort of have this sense that it's the human spirit that is fundamentally and... Uh, indomitably, if you like, to quote Tom, uh, the thing that saves the day. So, so obviously we see it in Noah in the way in which uh, in that last moment he says goodbye, Vira, and the yep. doctor suggests that he's the one who actually has taken the swarm off into the spaceship to be blasted off. Yeah, yeah like was it, was it him all along? Yeah, yeah exactly. But you know what? It's also Rogan. And the way in which his sacrifice is emblematic, emblematic rather of um, you know the human spirit this is perfectly right. It's meant to be the Doctor, but of course, Rogan punches the Doctor so, out. So cheerfully. And he, <laughs> and he makes a union joke. It's another class. That's so good. 
<laughs> but it's interesting and apt, I think, because it's, it shouldn't be the Doctor who saves the day here. This is a story about the human will, the human triumph. The yep. Doctor is an alien. We're very much Tom's Doctor in season 12 and maybe 13 as well. He is very much... Mm. He loves humanity, it's clear, but he's not human. He, he doesn't display those sort of human traits that we see maybe with the Davison and Tennant sure. Doctor. Yeah. So it actually is quite uh, fitting, I guess, that Rogan takes the place as, as the saviour of this particular... Um, or the saviour of humanity in this particular story. And... This is what makes The Ark in Space, I think, maybe the best Hinchcliffe and Holmes story because it's as close to the archetypal structure and tone of what the Gothic form of literature is, and that's equal parts terrifying and comforting. And in short, and technically, the word for that is sublime. (laughs) (laughs) So could you, like, sum up gothic in like a one sentence high concept (laughs) (laughs) okay i can actually no no let me try let me try i know you can it's this sense of um we start off as kids watching doctor who from behind the sofa yeah but we learn to grow into our courage and we experience the sublime as a result (laughs) yeah that works Yeah, the Wirren, I mean, the Wirren are even, in, often in Gothic horror, it's like an, an ancient nameless evil, you know, like something yeah. from beyond time or whatever. Like, like Lovecraft, Lovecraft, right? Totally. Yeah. And the Wirren are ancient because they're a, an ancient horror coming, floating th- through the void yeah. from out of space. Equally unrecognizable to sort of what human experience is, totally. particularly through the way in which they consume body and soul. I agree. Yeah, definitely. So in a way, they're not even necessarily evil. They're just looking for a home. That, that home happens to coincide with uh, eating all of humanity <laughs> to become... The, I love that idea that they're going to become an advanced technological species. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, gents, can we go into maybe having a look at how the Gothic could be seen to apply to the other Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories? Sure. Ooh, you want to go through some other stories? Well, let's have a look because, you know, we're, we're very familiar with this era because we were, I guess, growing up in the 80s and 90s and, mm. you know, Tom Baker was, particularly yeah. the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era was always on. On repeats. On repeats in yeah. ABC. So I feel like, for me at least, and I think probably for you two guys as well, it's part of that initial formative experience of what Doctor Who is. And in a way, you never forget your first, do you? you it sort of sets the template and the tone. In the same way that Ark in Space sets the template and the tone for the rest of Hinchcliffe and Holmes, I think that sort of understanding of what Doctor Who is as gothic is something that, you know, for us, for our generation, really is, is intrinsic in Doctor Who. So maybe let's have a go through these because... Uh, in season 12, there's, there's three other stories, right? And I just want to get your thoughts here around, you know, the impressions that you have of these stories, um, how you evaluate them, what your, your feelings are and immediate sort of reactions that are evoked, you know, from these titles that are, you know, pretty totemic in our memory. So after this, we go to Centauran Experiment, right? Okay. So immediate reactions and thoughts. This is the one where the Centauran is on like the post-apocalyptic yeah, he, experimenting like experimenting. on mankind. So that's a experimentation on humans, like yes. it's a body horror kind of a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great quarry. Great quarry. <laughs> Excellent wasteland. It's in a wasteland. Yeah, yeah it's Darmor, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah, it's a national it's park. Interesting how all of Ark in Space is shot in sets. All of Centauran Experiment well, is on location. Mm. I think that's because they, they were meant, they're meant to shoot it as a six-episode story. You know yeah. how often, often they do a four-parter and a two-parter? Mm. It's sort of in one Six, six episodes. Seeds of Doom? Totally. And so, and so they shot all of uh, Ark in studio and all of Suntaran on a location. Yep. Yeah. And it's only two episodes as well. I guess the, the immediate thing I think of when I think of that is when they're just trying to get to the button on the back of the Suntarans. <laughs> yeah. the, the probing the vent. Because, like, he's, you know, he's a... The probing vent, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was the only time with that story that I was on the edge of my seat. It was that, just like, oh, they've got to hit it. 
I remember it being quite violent. It is. Yeah, it was. It? it was violent. Yeah, it is very violent. And you know, that's that's also sort of supplemented, I think, by we were talking before about eugenics. There's kind of Mendelian feel around well, uh, the Santaran in that story. Santarans are big into uh, genetic experimentation. Yeah, exactly right. So again, mm. elements of the Gothic and, there. And I mean, the Santaran is like a quite squat, ugly kind of. It's almost a creature. You know, it's a creature. It's These like, aliens in Doctor Who are though, aren't they? But Cybermen, is it a little bit garlic. Frankensteinian? But they're a monster that they've taken control of their destiny because it may, maybe he may be a creature, maybe a monster, but they're technological. You know, they've got space suits and they're fighting a war in space. Like this is true. Yeah. So the next one's Genesis of the Daleks, which Ooh, we did with Liz Miles a little while ago. <laughs> Immediate thoughts. Um, but that's, that's again like experiment, experimenting on on people's bodies and turning them into horrible horrible creations. Like yeah. Kind of, I mean, the Daleks are kind of Frankenstein. Yeah, it is true, isn't it? And Davros is you know definitely a Doctor Frankenstein type. Uh, because his creation gets away from him, you know, yeah. he um, he loses uh, t- contact with it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he's Frankenstein's monster, but he's also Frankenstein, the mad genius as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And it all yeah. takes place place in an underground bunker, which is kind of like the Berg on the Hill. Exactly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Oh, and uh, and <laughs> it may not be gothic, but it's definitely goth as hell. They all wear black. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, so, so Revenge of the Simon closes off season 12. Yep. Sure. Uh, what have we got? Gold Planet. Planet of Gold. What Planet an idea. Gold. So yeah, great. that is a cool idea. Um, caves. Uh, I'm going to say at this moment, so. I'm all about uh, discovering weaknesses. Gold <laughs> dust thrown into the Cyberman chest yes. unit. Yeah. Uh, you're going to find out a way to kill him. Well, and we laugh, then, but isn't that like, you know, the stake through the heart of Dracula? Or, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Know, the, the sort of theme of, of sickness and totally. disease and, or plague, you know, in, in, in gothic stories as well. A lot of subterranean mm. oh, yeah. battles. Absolutely. Of, uh, Very dark. Yeah, sort of in the yeah. crypt. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, even, the, even the good guys who are uh, the Vogans are still kind of, they're, they're, they're quite, they're kind of gross. They are. Yeah, they are kind of gross. They're, they're gross jerks. They're little mole. <laughs> they are gross jerks. Yeah. Yeah, gross little mole men. Little mole men. <laughs> and they're, are they jerks? I don't know if they were jerks. <laughs> don't they have selfish motives as well? Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so on to season 13 now. It kicks off with one that we've already done, Terror of the Zygons. Yeah. Okay, this is an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> it's body doubles. Who am yep. I really talking to? Yeah. yeah. Who am I talking to here? The thought that mum and dad could even be Zygons. <laughs> yes. There's quote a, Steve from the episode. There's a big old house on a hill, I think. Yeah. Uh, yep. And then there's the wait, this like sort of under. Oh, yeah, we the, get the, we the get underwater the... ship. There's kind of a house, a berg on the hill, and then yeah. uh, the Loch Ness monster man. It's an, an ancient, nameless evil. Yeah. yeah. Well, sort of. It's not evil. They make it evil, I guess. Yeah. Ancient, nameless evil rising from the deep. Yeah. And again, one of the reasons why we chose it was that juxtaposing between the safety of the village and what's known in unit that family mm-hmm. that we're very familiar with. And it's you know rather comforting, yep. and that sort of you know sinister nature of Nurse Ratchet, as yeah. he called her, mm. Cole, oh, uh, Auntie Matron, <laughs> the Auntie Matron, uh, Auntie Matron. <laughs> the nurse who's supposed to look after you turns into a monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To kill you. I wouldn't trust her. I mean, she looks around, <laughs> uh, beady eyes. Uh, all those tentacle. Oh, they're, so they're very tentacly. Those, mm. uh, those zygons, aren't they? Well, yeah. tentacly, they're not tentacly. Right. And because you were right, like the organics of the zygons, they're gross. Yeah, it's they're, disgusting. They're it's organic and slimy. And yeah, and you don't want to touch any of that stuff. It really makes you feel gross. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the next one is Planet of Evil. Controversial. Um, I have not seen this one. <laughs> Great Forest. Don't remember much. You know what? It is pretty forgettable. I think it's probably the the weakest of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. But mm. you know what you have in that story is 
the setting is the edge of the universe, so again, quite remote, mm. quite uh, you know, distant. In a jungle. In a jungle, yeah. yeah that mm. beautiful red lit Roger Murray. Yeah, jungle. yeah, it was lit really. Mm. That was cool. It is gorgeous, but it, it's this whole thing about um, you know people changing or morphing into into monsters, which of course is Doctor Jekyll and Mister mm. Hyde, which is yeah. a classic gothic uh, story from Victorian England. Um, moving on to Pyramids of Mars. Oh, that's a goodie. There's an ancient evil there with Sutek. A really weird looking mummy. <laughs> Sutek, Sutek was scary. Sutek was scary. Yeah, definitely. And it was all shot on uh, Mick Jagger's mansion. That's right. I think. Like, it was, yeah, it was. It was shot at Mick Jagger's house. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Wasn't that Seas of Doom? Also Seas of oh, Doom. Oh, yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No way. All right. <laughs> But, but the other thing about that is, is the possession of the body or the soul by Sutek, right? You yep. become his slave. Uh, so that's another thing. It's theme, all about the body horror. It is, isn't it? Um, Taking we, over. Speaking of, the android invasion. Oh, love oh, this. Oh, yeah. yeah. People, people don't like this, I don't think. I, no, I, I love it. I've I really do. But of course, it's the doppelganger thing, right? And yeah. kind of like Terror of the Zygons with the, uh, the the body duplicates. That's right, and Harry comes back when this yeah, Sarah's, yeah. Weird. Sarah's like, face, robot Sarah's face comes off, and that's just like... Oh, that's so, such a one of those so shots, sinister. isn't it? It's great. We talked about it with Zygons, yeah. policemen turning around totally. in the yeah. car. It, that, that shot, Sarah's face falling off. That is one of those classic, iconic Doctor Who moments. Totally. It is, because it's, she's the like, companion. Like, yeah. how is she a monster? And, and then yeah. that reveal, again, that whole thing between the safe and the sinister mm. and the way mm. that they yes. juxtapose. Definitely. Like, she's so lovely and um, and she's, like, sort of an action person and yeah. she's quick-witted and she's smart and she's got, you know, she's got a sharp, a sharp tongue. <laughs> and, you, you know, this show makes you love her. And then <laughs> the, she falls over and she's And her a face rock. falls off. And she's be- a before that happens, she um, she's kind of almost violent to the Doctor. Like, she's mm. aggressive to him. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, of course, is we have a very safe village, much like Tullock Moore in, in Terror of the Zygons, except yeah. here it's the village itself that is unsafe because, of course, it's the uh, it's an alien duplicate of an English village, which I just love the idea. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so cool. That someone went to the trouble to like, recreate an English village. <laughs> yeah. Although that's my first ever target. That was my first ever Doctor Who. Nice, yeah. Good one. All right, next one, maybe another sort of title to, to rival Ark in Space as maybe the most gothic. It's The Brain of Morbius. Oh, very dark. Good very, take very on uh, Frankenstein's yeah. monster there. Exactly. So he's Going like back he's to Mary building, Shelley. He's building this, he's building <laughs> this housing for a brain. Yeah, it's just a it's, brain container. It's really... The disembodied brain as a yeah. kid in a jar with the green lighting. So unsettling. Oh, wow. So unsettling. And, and building this body out of spare parts yeah. and like... It's gross. Yeah. And there's a lot of ritual in the, in the brain, of, brain of Mobius. Yeah, we see it with the Sisterhood of Khan. Sister Khan. Come and back into New Who as well in the Moffat era, which yeah. is Yeah, really but they're cool. witches, right? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're witches. They are. Sure. Yep. And it's amazing because like, this is one of the uh, really few classic Doctor Who stories that gets away with the depiction of blood. Mm. Like there's a lot of blood. There's a de- you know, the, uh, yeah. the mutant at the beginning is decapitated and all that. Uh, you know the idea of decapitating the doctor's head yeah. that's really grim and dark My for a kids show. Mary Whitehouse yeah. would have had a field day. <laughs> don't, don't they have like a sacred flame that gives them eternal life as well? Yes, they mm. do. That's pretty gothic. Yeah, yeah definitely. Some sort of if, magic. If I was to here. use the term lazily, I'd say that was pretty gothic. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one for season thirteen, uh, we've already done it. It's the Seeds of Doom. Hey, mm-hmm. yeah, nasty. It's like plants. Well, you know, it's like a, an, an, an evil force taking over people's bodies, right? So again, like the Wirren, except it's the crinoid here. Yeah, definitely. People are totally subsumed, not only physically, but you know, by their, their minds. And then there's that gigantic, the gigantic monster at the end. Just, yeah. And it's and again, it's an ancient nameless evil mm. not nameless I guess it's an ancient evil coming from outer space <laughs> yeah from the depths of space uh, season 14 takes us into uh, 1492 Italy and the mask of Mandragora 
So it's, uh, I think the setting here. Well, there's a castle, right? Well, exactly, right? <laughs> Refresh my memory, Steve. It, if I remember, it's a lot of uh, period st- stuff in in a in sort of dark wood, claustrophobic rooms. It's it's quite claustrophobic. Yeah, definitely, and also like crypts and underground caverns, secret cults, uh, but also the possession of, of the sort of cult members by the mm. Mandragora Helix mm. as well. You know, the, the sort of light emanating from those purple robes is oh, seeped mm. into my memory Ooh. as a kid. Steve paints a hauntingly gothic. Yeah, <laughs> image we'll watch it again. Yeah, maybe we should watch that again. <laughs> All right, we get to Sarah Jane's last. It's oh. the Hand of Fear. Oh, man. <gasps> well, yeah. Well, that's Possession again, and yeah. it's, again, ancient. I was seeing a running theme here. Yeah. <laughs> ancient, ancient evil, super, yep. something super scary. Yep. Mm. So there's a nuclear power plant, which is your Berg, and all I also remember is the sort of disembodied, gnarled hand and mm. Sarah getting possessed. But again, you know, it's like body parts and mm. possession mm. And, mm. and, you know, the idea that the nuclear power plant's going to explode. It's all about the very idea that something is f***ing with someone beyond their control and, you know, getting in their real personal space. Yeah, yeah. And how terrifying is it to see, like, uh, Sarah Jane Smith, Eldred Must Live. It's so cool. Don't they do that whole one in the... Isn't that the the other control room in the TARDIS as well? The dark sort of wooden one? Yeah. That's that's pretty goth. That's That's also in in Mask and the Dragger as well, yeah. Um, All right, so Sarah Jane, we leave her behind at that point. Mm -hmm. Farewell. Uh, Must we? (laughs) Well, we go back to Gallifrey, don't we, right? And his deadly assassin. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we were talking before, I was talking before, about the individual against the edifice, right? And this is a classic story in that regard because we have the Doctor who is the most, you know, unique of individuals. Individual. Individual of individuals, yeah. Yeah. And Gallifrey being... You know, that unmoving... Bogged down by so much, like, hierarchy and um, uh, bureaucracy. Exactly. Uh, My, apart from all the... Or to take away from the political side of it all, mm. the one thing I really take away from Deadly Assassin is just the how the hell the Time Lord can now transcend his regenerations. Oh, you mean the Master yeah. creature? I just love that idea. It took me so long to feel. It's like, like his hatred keeps him alive yeah. that long, and he's kind of a gross, dis- like sort of. Mut- he's like a mutated. Grim Reaper. He yeah. is the Grim Reaper. If and that also, isn't gothic, I don't know what is. Yeah. One of my favourite Target covers of all time. Oh, yeah. The Deadly Assassin with the yeah. hooded figure of the Master, yeah. the Grim Reaper Master, with and the, the blood dripping face. down. Kept alive. So How did they cool. get away with that? Oh, my God. So amazing. <laughs> and he's, he's sort of behind the scenes, right? He's sort of working his machinations. Mm. And the doctors, they spend a lot of time in that giant sort of, the giant chamber. Is it the Panopticon? Panopticon, Panopticon And it's yeah. kind of like a cathedral. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. Um, we're going to Face of Evil now. So this is Leela's first story. And a bit oh, like yeah, okay. Planet yeah. of Evil, we have that jungle set. But what's really interesting about this one is that you have a civilization far in the future that has regressed. Hey. Okay. But also in the far, uh, final two episodes, we sort of get into a futuristic setting. And what we see is a mad computer that's modeled its, its identity on the Doctor. And is you know we see that face of evil, the face of evil being the doctor's face, and so yep. we have all these you know questions That's of identity right. yeah. and doppelgangers yep. and uh, you know the evil version of the doctor, which is you know again very gothic. Yeah. All right, so we've got two more. Robots of Death is one that we've already done. Yep. Um, this one, particularly gothic in a number of ways, I feel. Well, the familiar. Real, mur- it was a real murder mystery party time, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah right. that's true. Yeah. It's it's very it's sort of it's quite a dark um, setting, like it was well, that giant. Um, Sand miner. Yeah, it's great. It's very claustrophobic, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. And, uh, and you, you, were you talking about the familiar becoming terrifying? Yeah. yeah. The robots are the most, like, a huge part of their lives, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. The yeah, idea, so they're meant to be subservient. Totally. The idea that they that they could um, murder a human, it's like mm. that, that the concept of that is like enough to like destroy their entire society. Mm. Yeah. That's how familiar they are. 
And again, with the robots, these ideas of identity, you know, what's mm. human, what isn't. Something that you would have not thought twice about cleaning out your laundry while you lounged around <laughs> is now possibly a threat yeah. and not something you should be in a room alone with. Yeah. And the, 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 the villain at the end is trying to make himself into one of the, one of the creatures. Mm. So he's trying to make himself into a robot. Yeah. And last one of the Hinchcliffe era is Talon Zhu Wing Chiang. Oh, yeah. The Doctor looks so great in that Sherlock Holmes <laughs> uh, outfit with the hat and the pipe. And it's, oh, it's so great. Yeah, and that evokes, again, sort of gothic elements of, of murder and, and mystery. Sherlock Holmes being, you know, very much a Victorian um, invention. And, mm. you know, what's happening at that time is the Jack the Ripper murders, right? Sure. Yep. So it very much speaks of that kind of gothic element. And it's kind of mm. a dark, foggy London, if I remember right. It is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Again, you saw that sort of, you know, subterranean feel uh, around it as well. Is and it? dark chambers and, and, mm. and hidden... Yeah, that's right, yeah. Is racism an element of gothic fiction? <laughs> well, you know that it is. You know is. what? It's... <laughs> You know that it is. In this instance. (laughs) And not only in this instance. But, you know, we have the masked villain, uh, you know, that sort of deformity, that sense of, you know, the the, the face of Magnus Greel being sort of distorted. Uh, And again, that sort of talks very much to to, that sort of Mm. horrific aspect of of the deformed, which is sort of a shortcut for for villainy in, in Gothic literature. So, gents, that takes us to the end of season 14, but there's actually two more stories oh, in okay. season 15. that you've already, of... you've already convinced me, but let's go. <laughs> Do it. I'm having fun. Well, I think these, these two are sort of ones that really stand up for me, and I didn't want to exclude them because we're, we're talking about an era that is very evocative of this mood, and these two, even though they're technically in the Williams era, are really, I think, Hinch, Hinchcliffe hangovers, if you like, or at least um, you know, have the hand of Holmes on, on them. So mm-hmm. the first one... Horror of Fang Rock. Okay. Hey. It's a lighthouse, and it's a it's a, an unidentifiable horror. Right, confined space. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So again, the evil horror without the name. Well, we find out what it is later on, mm. but yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Slow moving, but maybe that's more ominous, really, than well, slow moving. It's hard for a blob to get up a staircase, man. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's a, a, you know, even if it's a warrior. I like the setting though. Yeah. The setting is cool. Yeah. So very isolated, des- desolate plain. Mm. Love that. So th- this is written by Terence Dix, and I think uh, Terence Dix, this one and, and the Five Doctors is inspired by a incredibly famous uh, piece of Gothic literature mm. um, by Byron. So sure, this idea, which is like this dark tower on the on the horizon, initially in terms of the lighthouse, and, and then later mm. on in terms of the Tower of Rassilon, where the Tomb of Rassilon sure. is in the Five Doctors as yep, well. Yep. So clearly you have a, a very famous uh, gothic piece of literature that inspires the very mm, premise and the mm. very idea of, of, of horror Fang Rock. Lastly, gents indulge me. This is one of my favourites. Mm. Image of the Fendal. Oh, you Fendal. love Image of the Fendal. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. It is really good. Again, like the master in The Deadly Assassin, we have the embodiment of death with the Fendal. It's the skull that we yeah. see. Mm. Yep. We also have those horrible, creepy Fendaline creatures that, you know, sort of look oh, like... Uh, the gills. Mini- yeah. The frill, frilly gills. <laughs> it's like it shows age. And those it's gross really cool. tongues that sort of stick yeah. out the, you know, the top of the centipede kind of structure. Yeah. So, you know, the real sort of horrific aspect to it. We also have that lone country house. Yep. So that whole thing about the the safe, which is you know very much subverted into the sinister with the the base under siege sort of aspect around that mm. through the, through the Fendel, and Dan, we were talking earlier about Lovecraft. Well, it's yeah, it's kind of an ancient um, ancient implacable mm. horror, which is kind of like the Warren. That's yeah, the thing yeah. I meant to say about the Warren that they're implacable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, going think back so. to Lovecraft, did you, Dan, actually read that beautiful leather-bound oh. volume of Lovecraft stories that I bought you for your birthday a few years back? I wanted to tell you this because um, I hadn't, I didn't read it. It was a long time ago. You gave it. Gave, yeah, it was a few years ago. Few years ago. Um, and it sat on my shelf, this giant, enormous tome, and it was kind of, it kind of intimidated me. Yep. Until it's like, leather-bound. <laughs> until literally six weeks ago, I picked it up the, the shelf, started to read it, and I could not put it down because it's so good. Yeah, I'm good at presents. Right. Totally. <laughs> Lovecraft is a thing that it's got so much lore around it, and people get sick of all that stuff. But like, yeah. I actually decided to read it. It's, it's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, awesome. Great. Thank you. Been, Thanks been for waiting for years for you to mention. Sorry. <laughs> I enjoyed that, the other day. Gift, that expensive. <laughs> yeah, gift. totally. It's massive. Oh, it was nothing. It's got shiny page. Oh, like, it's got beautiful uh, leather. It's ridiculous. Like imprinting on the cover and stuff. I it's feel. I feel gorgeous totally. Gorgeous gift. I feel so ostentatious with like reading it in public. It's just like. So oh, it's too big to take on a bus, <laughs> it's, man. Like it's, it's just. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Hmm. You need to be reading that at a, in your study at a desk. That's that's how you <laughs> totally. read a book on, like that. By candlelight, yeah, on a stormy night. Mm. All right, thanks, gents, for indulging me. That, oh, thank you. Well, you know, I thought was it was important. Yeah, yeah, it was lots of fun also too. Um, I thought it was important to sort of recap essentially what gothic horror actually is and gothic literature and its conventions in the Arkin space. But you know, we said before, right at the beginning, this is a template, right? The Arkin mm. space is a progenitor, if you like, for a lot of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes structures and tones. Mm-hmm. And preoccupations, and I think, you know, we see that in the story, and we see that actually pretty much in every single story that comes from th- for three years after that. Whether that means Doctor Who becomes, you know, stuck in a formula or whatever else, I'm not really sure because it's such a great formula, mm-hmm. and I love it, and that's probably the eight-year-old version of me talking at this point. Um, but I think there's a place for it in Doctor Who, and three years is probably yeah. just the right length yeah. before yeah. changing into something very different. Mm. You've just uh, methodically, step by step, lawyered me into totally agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, so that's it. You heard it from my sweet dogs. Phil- Hinchcliffe is gothic, so so there. <laughs> yeah. Don't argue. Gentlemen, with our last episode of Logopolis, we came up with a brand new segment. It's called, What Did We Forget? So, <laughs> so- gentlemen... What did we forget? We didn't talk about Sarah Jane in the Triangle Tunnel. Okay. Love the Triangle Tunnel. Love that triangle hatch. Why is it a triangle? There's it just no reason. looks so cool. It's again, it's the design. It's Roger, Roger Murray Leach. Yep. And that that image, again, is one of those things that I remember about the Arkin Space from first viewing as a kid on the ABC back in the 80s. Sure, yeah. It's wonderful. Um, also, though, like, how do we feel about it watching it now mm. in the way in which the Doctor sort of upset Sarah browbeats her doesn't he yeah. he browbeats her to, to, to get it well because he knows that she's got it in her to, to continue and he, t- he decides to take that tough love approach but it's really um, it's hard to watch it is hard to watch it? yeah there's a lot of you stupid girl yeah, uh, yeah. I knew you would you would, I knew you'd fail it's, yeah. it's <laughs> yeah it's a little bit harsh uh when she gets out of the tunnel, she's when you remember when he she puts her arms around his neck and he sort of pulls her <laughs> worm like out of the tunnel. Do you yeah. remember that? And then, but she, then she hits him, which she, is pretty great. She almost hits him because she says, "Go away." And it, that's so it's so funny because and then after they reconcile, there needs to be a hug there, really, right? Uh. But so it's it's very strange in BBC like like she doesn't she hits him, but she doesn't quite hit him, mm. and then they don't hug. Like I mean. Remember we we um that's very that's yeah very he British, only isn't it? he only says no. like excellent Sarah I knew you could do it or something like that yeah and, and she's like oh it. thank you and that's it's like that's um, it. what yeah. <laughs> yeah remember they were saying on the commentary that they could they had to be very careful never to make it sort of not never to get too close true yeah yeah, yeah. it's funny it's so weird. You yeah 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 yeah. yeah yeah but also you wouldn't have the stupid girl remark these days no as you well. wouldn't yeah. Nonetheless, very iconic the triangular mm. design again another yeah. Roger Murray Leach triumph I will never question him. 
<laughs> just that just that idea of the race memory thing. Oh yeah. Um, Tom Baker, I think the doctor calls it symbiotic atavism at some point. <laughs> That's um, Bob Holmes again. Yeah, it definitely comes up in Doctor Who a few more times. I, I know it's in Frontios. I think Tolo oh. has something to do with Tolo and his. I can't remember quite right, but I remember them talking about race memory. Yeah, mm. and he starts dribbling. And there's yeah, and it comes up a few times in the new adventures if I remember right. But I know that's not necessarily people not interested in that. But yeah, <laughs> and it's but it also comes up. The concept also comes up of race memory, genetic memory it comes up in the movie uh, Alien Resurrection, which is oh my god, of course yeah. it does. Yeah, and so that's kind of a weirdy alien. Thing yeah, for sure. Yeah, Ridley Scott. Right, so that's what everyone forgot. Obviously, Steve didn't forget anything. Yeah. Uh, so cool. Let's move on. Hey Cole. Yo. Why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? Bubble wrap. <laughs> um, Absolutely. It's all about the bubble oh, wrap. Oh man, we've covered a lot of it already. Look, I, it's one of those ones I've always remembered the first time I've seen yeah. it, as I've already mentioned, because it just mm. struck me as amazing. Mm. It's really cool. The narrative is really well structured. It's just, we've covered the sets. Yeah. Yeah. The amazing sets. Oh, those sets are incredible. I, can't, I still can't get over like seeing some behind the scenes stuff, just how it all came together, yeah. really. Mm. It's just the mind of Murray Leach, I think. Totally. Mm. Just like, I don't know how... These mirrors, so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, it's just really good Doctor Who, man. It's really, really good Doctor Who. Great TARDIS team, mm. great story, Amazing. great production team. Everything works. In fact, it's so good, sweet dogs, that Russell T Davies <laughs> and Stephen Moffat <laughs> at different times have gone on the record and said that the Ark in Space is both of their favourite stories from the classic run of Doctor Who. So now we can all finally agree on something. (laughs) Moffat and Davies agree. (laughs) And so do I. I agree as well. Totally. It's it's just like the writing is so good. Yeah. The direction is so tight. Music, score, so good. It's and it's just like it's a classic team. Like it's a perfect perfect example of Harry Sarah Doctor. Mm. Tom Baker, Doctor, um, like trio, how they, well they work together. Yep. Um, the monster is, to me, so terrifying for so many reasons. I just mm. think it's a, a great not the mandibles, concept. Obviously. Definitely not the prop, but yeah. like the idea of the monster and it, like what it does and why yeah, it does what it does yeah. and how it gets there is so scary to me. What I, what I also love about it, another reason to watch it, I guess, is that I get another appreciation as an adult. And having to analyze things mm. a bit more when we're doing the podcast, for example, Mm. is that he learn all the real clever little elements that go into play. Yeah. Like all that stuff about the the hive mind. Mm. So clever. That that idea of the race memory that's like sort of stolen by eat by consuming the the victim. It's just like so terrifying. Body and soul. Yeah. Body and soul. Yeah. It's because, and because Noah kind of has, he has uh, Dune inside of him. Like, Mm. you know, he says, I am Dune. Like, like to have your personality and your soul essentially subsumed and taken into like another creature and mm-hmm. being enthralled to it. Like it's just terrifying. And what about you, Steve? Why why do you think we should watch this? Well, okay. So we did Legopolis last time, which is the last yeah. of Tom, but this is probably the first proper Tom in many ways. Sure. Uh, Ark in Space sets mm-hmm. the tone for the three years, as we said, coming after this. Mm. And I also said earlier that it's probably the most archetypal example of what gothic literature in doctor who is it nails it it knocks it out of the park first time Mm. you mentioned this before cole Mm. you know hinchcliffe comes on his young man he's 29 Mm. he's wanting to prove his uh you know his Mm. worth and he delivers bob holmes it's the first time that he steps in as script editor page one rewrite delivers tom baker in season 12 in particular we were talking about this on the genesis podcast Mm. with um with liz miles he hasn't seen the public reaction yet, so he wow. hasn't got yeah, that yeah. sort of uh, yeah. you know swagger that we see later on. So he is working at this. Yeah. Mm. 
uh, he's got something to something, he's got something to prove. He absolutely has yeah. because he's come off a, a building site into the most you know coveted <laughs> role in in all of British television at the time, mm. and we also have. That TARDIS team, Elizabeth Sladen, Eden Marder, famously all very got on very, very well. Mm, yeah. uh, and for that, that season 12, it actually is one of the great TARDIS teams of all time. You, you do, they did get on well. They were friends. And do you remember in the commentary, Elizabeth Sladen saying, I still remember the feel and smell of Ian's coat, that yeah. coat he's wearing. Oh, it was so sweet. Yeah. It was like, fuck. Yeah, because, of course, Ian Marder passed away in yeah. the 80s, tragically, yeah, from complications from his diabetes. Yeah. So sad. But not before he wrote the novelization for this story, which oh. I read long before I saw oh, yeah. it as a child, and the book terrified me. That yellow cover. It. Yeah, it's great. And something that we like to do in every episode, it's now time to cross over and find out what did Bridget think? So we're here with Bridget. Bridget, hey. thank hey. you so much. Hi, what's up? And we're here to talk Ark in Space. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just get straight down to it. Uh, did you have fun? Uh, fun? Hmm. That's not the word I would use, but <laughs> I actually really enjoyed this story. I actually felt kind of riveted. I was like, finally, these dudes bring me a story, you know, <laughs> and, like, and like a set of Doctor Who that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, there's always bits missing in the editing, usually. But this one is really good. It's I would recommend it. Jeez, oh, I mean, I mean, that's that's definitely true of Arcade Space. I feel like when, you, like you say, it makes sense. Like, I feel like nothing's really lost in the editing, and like everything that happens at the start, and like when things happen later, you never, you're never like, why did that happen? You always understand because they plotted out so yeah, well. Yeah, and I like. You understand the villains. They're not like out of control, stupid. <laughs> you know, like there's no ham. Like, you know what I mean? Everyone's kind of like, it's, it's, it's really good. Like, I really liked it. All right, great. Did you did you feel that Noah was hammy at all? Like he was the guy uh-huh, who I turned into him. the moon? Okay. I loved him. You loved it when he pulled out, when he pulled his hand out of the, I was watching, to, like, I didn't tell Bridget about the bubble wrap. Let's get to the bubble wrap. <laughs> I didn't tell her about the bubble wrap because I wanted to see if she would notice or not. And I was just like, whoa, good use of bubble wrap. <laughs> I work in a craft club, so I'm like, that bubble wrap's sick. But I don't think you noticed. The things I can do with bubble wrap now. I don't Inspired. Think you, I don't think you noticed until um, that weird larvae, like it's just a dude in a larvae suit. Oh, I love the, the dudes in the bubble wrap larvae suit crawling around with that. <laughs> just like, you can see them like, crawling, wrapped in plastic. It's so good. I loved it. I loved that. I loved it when they opened the um, cupboard and the... <laughs> The weird insect just falls out. Like, before you know it's dead, you're just like, oh man, this is sick. This is so tacky. And it's the best thing I've ever seen. But yeah, so we, good. I kept turning to the um, to the commentary track uh, during, the, during the endings so that Bridget could hear like Tom Baker laughing at all of the effects. It was really yeah, funny. That was, that was good. Definitely turn on that commentary track. And and Tom Baker, we have him back as the Doctor. You've said before that he was your first. Yes, he was. Aww. <laughs> and I I think he's got good energy here. Like Dan was telling me all the way through, talking over me, Sorry. watching it, like narrating it for me. But he was saying that <laughs> this is at the beginning for him, yeah, so it's like the really second is. episode for him. Yeah. And like he, we also watched like his last episode the other day, and that, he just was over it by then. <laughs> but he has like a little sparkle in his eye, and he's really doing the Doctor. I think he's doing really good work. Yeah, sorry, I do. Sweet dogs, I do have a habit of like, um, of like, Hoovian splaining 
the, the episodes to Bridget. <laughs> yeah, so, that's, uh, yeah. This is the, one of the first times where she actually said, Dan, stop. I, like, it's very this clear. This one's a really good story and it's clear <laughs> and entertaining and you're just distracting my entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> and what about Sarah Jane Smith? We saw her first time, I think, with Seeds of Doom when we sat down. Oh, gosh, it was a little while ago now. Um, and, and Harry joins her as well for this adventure. What did you make of these two? Yeah, good. Yeah. Sarah Jane's beautiful and cool <laughs> and plucky. <laughs> Don't say that word. I knew I was going to come out with it. It's a good word. What am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like how kind of like, you know, she's got guts. She's like, dude, this is the answer. I've got the answer for you. And the doctor just talks <laughs> over her and then she's like, now you're ready to accept the answer? And he's like, oh, the answer. <laughs> I like it how she's not just a bimbo or like, you know, she's she's cool. She's her own person. I yeah. like how she calls out the dude when he's sexist. I like that. Oh, Harry. Harry, yeah, yes. <laughs> she's like, whatever, I'm not an odd girl. Quit it. <laughs> it's cool. Talking of sexism, there's a very famous scene where Sarah Jane's going through that triangular sort of uh, pipeline, that air duct. And she gets stuck. She does get stuck. And the doctor <laughs> to motivate her starts basically being really horrible and sexist towards her. How did you, like, we've seen this from when we were child, totally, children, yeah. right? So we've kind of normalized it. But from your point of view, how does you react to that? Like, is that something that's like, oh, well, I don't I know about really that. I didn't really find it sexist. I felt like if, if it was a young boy in there or, you know, any, anyone, he would have just done the same thing. Okay. And, you, you're, and you've already experienced this exact thing. We were talking about Curse of Fenric. When it, when it happened because he says he's the same kind of mean to Ace in Curse of Fenris. That's true. So I feel like Bridget That's was true. kind of prepared for it. Like I think she yeah. knew, knew what was going on. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. It was just <laughs> like reverse tactics here. She's just been like, shut up, duh. <laughs> I don't know what she was like. I love how angry she gets. I'm glad she got out. That would be really scary getting stuck in a tube. Hey, it's like nightmares. <laughs> stuck in a tube with a whole bunch of grubs trying to cunt ya. No, thank you. <laughs> What did you uh, so? What did you think of the Weirin, the alien? Uh, alien I think they're cool, and I reckon it's like, dudes, the humans—they were really mean to those Weirin. I think they deserve their revenge. <laughs> Seriously, they just like wiped them off their planet. Yeah, dudes, fair enough. You can destroy those humans. That's mean. That's my two cents. <laughs> Weirin, I'm here for you. I hear you in your plight for somewhere to live. Damn those pesky humans. What a race exactly. of turds. <laughs> I'm going to ask also just about the set design because I think when we were recording earlier uh, with Dan and Cole. It's one of our favourite parts. Yeah, it? it really sort of stood out to us. Mm. I, I, from well, your... it didn't stand out as bad to me, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. Because <laughs> we've been living with it. I mean, we've been, I didn't cause... like go, whoa, that set design, that's ah. cool. I just went, oh, yeah. It's I not, didn't notice it. It's not crap. Yes. They must have spent all the money on sets and none of the money on the big plastic wasp. <laughs> I guess what we really want to ask is, uh, did you, I mean, did you enjoy the, did you enjoy the Arkin space more? We always have to check this, um, sweet talks, uh, from, if you were going to rate this from Inferno to 10, uh, where would you put it? I mean, you don't have to give us, a, did you enjoy the Arkin space more than Inferno? Oh, Inferno to 10. Inferno being... Zero. The most zeroest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, I actually think it's pretty much the best episode I've ever seen. <gasps> what? I really liked it. Maybe Huge like call. 9.5. Wow. Okay, great. Excellent. She said it. So I that's really liked our, it. Our new rating system is going to be Inferno to Ark in Space. Somewhere in the I like middle. that Curse of Fenric one. It's pretty good. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, but, yeah, this one may be better. I like the ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
Okay, Bridget, thank you so much. It's been great to hear your thoughts. As uh, always. Yeah, as always. So thank yeah, you thanks again. for having me. Great. Bye. <laughs> and there you have it. That's what Bridget thought. We like to we like to get her angle. So uh, thanks for that, Bridget. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Bridget. All right, gentlemen. I think it's it's that time. We're, we're going to get back to a, another little segment we like, we like to do on our show, uh, where we discuss cliffhangers, crackers, or cliffhangers. Cliffhanger number one. So it's the shaky Wirren corpse falling on Harry out of the cupboard. Nice. nice. What do we think? The, well, the prop- I like it and I don't like it. Yeah. Let's start off with that. The prop's a bit wobbly, obviously. Very uh, wobbly. Tom boomed with laughter in the commentary when that bit came up. Do you remember? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, fella, that's right. He, he absolutely lost it because <laughs> it really does cool. look. It's wobbly. a bit ropey. It's and wobbly. it's too well lit as well. It's too it well falls lit. out of a cupboard, as you say, It's Cole. a, mon- mm. it's a yeah. monster reveal. But it, yeah, it, part one, into part one it, monster reveal. My yeah. favorite thing about it is that it looked it like just, a toy falling over to yeah, me. And did. I've always thought that. Mm. But the idea behind it, yeah. Well, because it's really it's, cool. Yeah, because it's, it's full. I love, I love the idea that it's the Queen's corpse, like the, the progenitor's corpse, and it's not alive. Like if, when, you, when it mm. falls on Harry, you're like, oh, it's a monster falling on Harry. And that's mm. the end of the episode. Monster reveal. Cool. But. When you get back to it, it's nothing. It's nothing to be scared of at all. It's just a course. Which is what they wanted it to go. Totally. That's what they were going oh, for. Most deaf. Did it? Did not it quite. Work? I no. think they needed to do one more thing on the direction, and it's just add a little bit of zoom as it's falling, just oh. to give it a bit of momentum, because it looks a bit, as you say, Cole, a bit ropey, and it's just like this is obviously a prop that's just. It's a prop over. falling over. Yeah. That's what I've always thought. Yeah. But I do love the idea behind it, and I love what they were going for. Yeah. So, in that in light of that, I'm going to give it a cracker. It's, mm, it's a, I think it's a clanger for me just because there's better ones. Clacker. Ah, oh, halfway. Geez. Nice. All right. That's your official verdict. Oh, I'm the only cracker. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. No, do it. Yeah. Okay. 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 Moving on, gentlemen. Cliffhanger number two. It's the bubble wrap hand. It's Noah's hand. <laughs> Getting pulled out of that ginormous pocket. How big are his pockets? That huge bubble wrap hand. I, um, this one, I know it's, I know, I know the bubble wrap's a thing, but like, this one for me, the, the actor uh, who plays Noah Kenton Moore, he has sometimes been accused of like overacting mm. in this story, and I think mm. he's a bit hammy sometimes. But like, I really love the, the he pulls it out of his pocket really slowly, and you can see that feeling of anguish on his face. Mm. I think he really sells it. Like mm. he sells. I kind he, of think he does too. He's, he's not even really quite sure what it is he's pulling yeah, out. It's like, terrifying. Yeah. He's the prime unit, so he is yeah. kind of in a way he's like the leader of all of humanity, and probably among the best you know mm. he's been chosen to lead mm. so to have this guy who's got these hints of sort of like fascist eugenic those kind of elements to him mm. to be having corrupted. his humanity corrupted yeah, and turned into something else is like it's so shock, it's so yeah. terrifying to him as that, well, I, that it's, right. he sells it to us I think I think he does too and yeah. I, yeah, you got to remember that like he's probably at this point he's already feeling that something's not quite right with yeah. himself mm. those worm worms are worming their way in yeah. <laughs> already I think Kenton Moore goes on the side of hair more often than not but here I think it's warranted right mm. because that is such a terrifying How like, one at an existential level it is horrific for all yeah. the reasons that you mentioned Dan and I think just the image just, I will always remember that look on his face as he's looking at the green bubble mm. wrap hand yeah. right and that in itself is such an iconic picture for me that I have to give this a, a cracker yeah yeah it's a cracker for me a uh, clanger no it's not it's a cracker <laughs> yeah I love it too Okay, moving on once again to cliffhanger number three. Mm-hmm. So this is the Doctor slipping into the infrastructure, tiptoeing around the cocoons, and he finds Noah turning full wearing. He's gone full wearing. He goes full wearing. You see that sort of crossfade shot of Noah's face yeah. sort of snarling out of the goo, and yeah. then it changes mm-hmm. into the, the wearing. Because 
head. Is it anger or, or fear that he's showing on his face? Oh, I think at that point it's self disgust. Yeah, yeah at that know. point it's just anguish. It's just emotion. I think at that point <laughs> he's having a, he's having a day. Yeah, he's it's, having a day. I do like it because uh, no one likes the idea that the doctor's going to go down there. He's going to try and turn the power on, mm. and he's assuring everyone that it's fine because the pupae are, are like they're in that gestation Stationary. period, so yeah. it's safe mm. down there right now. And so is Noah. Supposedly, he's moving on to the next phase, which is going full Wirren. Uh, I think the effect's a little like, like I hate to nitpick, but like you know, the effect of Noah's face on the Wirren, like, like the, either the face or the Wirren is moving a little bit, so it doesn't quite. Is the idea of yeah. it cracker worthy? It's just, or is it a little bit lazy? Because we is it the first time we see a full Wirren? Nope. Oh no, because there's the Queen, um, yep. and it's also you know it's been. It's out in the light and it's less scary, you know? Like, I'm, so when we see another Wirren, I don't know. If it's, it's not for the first time, a monster reveal isn't that scary. Is I guess the threat here is, is, is that the Doctor thinks he's going to go undetected and he still gets sprung anyway. But I don't feel like that's enough to call it a cracker. No. I mean, it's scary because Noah's face appears and then fades away and it's just a full-on Wirren. Mm. That's kind of a scary concept. Mm. But I think it's a bit, I think it's a bit flat. Yeah, compared to the, the the one before, I think this is definitely a, a clanger. Yeah, I think it's meant to be like the very last moment of the human vestige of mm. of Noah yeah. disappearing, and we see the Wirren sort of birth yep. in, in yep. its final form. Um, we've seen the Wirren before, so I think that's probably why it's a bit of a clang. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm going with clanger. I think it's a full clanger. We're agreed. All right, and of course, as we always get to the last one, there's this is cliffhanger number four. There, well, I kind I of. I want to Life mention the way you described it to me earlier this afternoon, <laughs> Dan. Quite apt, really. Vira looks at the Doctor's jelly babies for an extremely long time <laughs> as the Doctor, Harry, and Sarah disappear, and then looks up comically. Oh, where did I go? Why was she looking at those jelly babies for so long? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? This is almost a crap joke, isn't is it? Is it the first time she's seen a jelly baby? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, she says thank you, then looks down at the jelly babies for ages while they stand there really stiffly and then disappear yep. in the transmit. Yeah. Uh, and then she <laughs> says, thank you, and looks up and you know, right. they're gone. And then, and then she gives it, but she, like the last thing, like, as the sting starts, she gives a, this, this funny little smile and turns around and walks off like she's going to start the human race again. Yeah. I love all, that. Almost yeah. a crap joke, wasn't yeah. it? But not quite. Yeah. <laughs> I just love, I love Vira. I love, I love Wendy Williams. Yeah, she's and great. And so I love that moment. I think it's a bit of a crap joke. Uh, this one's a <laughs> clacker for me, I think. That's interesting. I always thought that she is, you know, turning on a heel determinedly to now resurrect or revivify the human yeah. race, as mm. you said, Dan. It never really occurred to me that it was a BBC crap joke, which wouldn't surprise me, in fact, because how many of the part fours mm. that we've looked at mm. so far on New to Who have yeah. ended with that BBC crap lot, joke if it, if it around the jelly joke, baby? It was a lot more subtle than yeah. Yeah, some of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? I, I love the idea. Again, it sort of ties into what we are talking before about the gothic and the triumph of the individual against, you know, the great peril and evil that we mm. sort of have. So I'm going to say Cracker because I really do like the way that it sort of ends on a, on a, on a note of hope. Okay. Yeah. I, I love that they're, they're, they're spent they, at the end of the episode, they're not taking the TARDIS. They're sort of... And yeah, and yeah. They're, they're, they're and that leads into yeah. the Santaran experiment because they trans, mm, where they transmit yeah. too. And they and they just they put on their Santaran experiment outfits, which rule. Yes. <laughs> Doctors gets that big coat. Harry gets his his iconic duffel. Yeah. And uh, Sarah so Jane. the yellow raincoat. The yellow with the beanie. She <laughs> yeah. looks so cool. I she love. Does look cool. Oh, I love the color. Yeah, for that <laughs> actually wardrobe alone and Wendy Williams, I'm giving it a cracker. <laughs> yeah. I might have to upgrade mine from clacker to cracker because oh. of those outfits. They're just, yeah, they they're are just great. Killer. They're great. Coat. You could immediately see them in a little daypole figure, couldn't you? Yeah. Like. Like a little toy figurine. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm going to go home and watch the Suntaran experiment just because it's, it's only yeah. two parts. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so it's that time of the show where we start to share the love. And Cole, you've got an interesting one for us this time. Something a little bit different. We're, we're often sharing the love with other podcasts hmm. uh, and the like, but I've sort of um, stumbled across a fellow by the name of Richard Bignell over the last couple of months. And he runs a magazine called Nothing at the End of the Lane. Mm. And it's an interesting title because it's actually what the original episode of An Earthly Child That's was right. meant to be called. So it's a great name for a magazine as well. And the way, it's, the way the magazine is described as the magazine of Doctor Who research and restoration, mm. which is really interesting. I stumbled across it because I was trying to look up sort of like behind the scenes stuff on classic the classic era. What this guy does, he's only... He's been doing it for quite a few years. He's actually only got about four or five issues because the extensive amount of research that goes into right. one issue is roughly around six years. Wow. Man, that is amazing. <laughs> so it's, prim- it's primarily this chap, Richard Bignell, but he's got a couple of others that are sort of working with him. Uh, I wanted to desperately get hold of a copy of something. Um, his issue three had something that I just could not ignore. And it was the uh, finally learning the full story about the 30th anniversary Doctor Who story that never happened, oh, Lost in the Dark Dimension. Yeah, cool. Back in the wilderness years, we all pined and pined yeah. for more Doctor Who. And all of a sudden, it was even mentioned in Doctor Who magazine that we were getting it. Mm. And then nothing happened. Yeah. And then it got stalled and then it went quiet. And I've always wanted to know the full story. So thanks to Richard and his magazine, they have a 30-page expose on the entire thing. Oh, wow. Awesome. Everything that happened. It is riveting reading. That article alone took him three years. Man, <laughs> that's crazy. He spoke to every person involved God. and got the full story. And he's even uncovered location recce shots. It's, Dude. It was destined for failure. But yeah, there you go. So I'm, I'm hooked. It's not just things like that. He's just got great stuff. Like uh, you'll find um, location shots for the Macro Terror. You'll find like, <laughs> like all sorts of random goodies. Great. It's great it. So yeah, uh, I just want to say, Richard, thank you for your service. What a labor of love. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to continue reading and I want our sweet dorks to actually get onto this. If it turns out that most people are aware of the fabulous work this man does, then, you know, um, you know, that's great. But if you want to look into more, his uh, website, endofthelane.co.uk, you can go there, buy copies of the magazine or have a bit of a read. Awesome. See what you reckon. Nice work. Good, good one. That's a good. That share is a love. really yeah. good share. Of love. Wow, fantastic. He's also on Twitter. I found. Yes, uh, he is on Twitter, and his Twitter feed alone is fantastic. It is. So he's recently had a lot of like Logopolis stuff because obviously the season eighteen. Yeah, box the box set. Launched. That's right. If you want to go follow at Nothing Lane, Richard Bignall. Thanks so much. Yeah. You can buy the DVD of The Ark in Space from BBC Online, or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at New to Who Podcast and also Facebook, or even email us at newtohupodcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtohu.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like clicking subscribe or leaving, you know, like a million-star review, these things always help us. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Cole. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. Be seeing you. See you.